Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 110, Xenophon and the Ten Thousand. Xenophon was born in Athens and lived from around 428 to 354 BC, so he grew up with the background of the Peloponnesian War. Little is known about his father, Gryllus, who does not seem to have achieved any political prominence in Athens, but his family background certainly was upper class, and his keen interest in horses and horsemanship suggests that his family were members of the wealthy equestrian class. If this is so, then he may well have shared the same political outlook as portrayed in Aristophanes' The Knights, which held an aristocratic contempt for the so-called demagogues, as we discussed in episode 95. It may also partly explain his dislike of Athenian democracy and his respect for and praise of Sparta's well-ordered and hierarchical society. There will be more on that shortly. The main sources for his life and career are his own works and a small section in Diogenes Laertes' Lives of Philosophers. Very little of his early life is attested, but it's safe to assume that his education followed the traditional pattern of an upper-class Athenian, with its emphasis on athletic training. However, at one point in his teens, we do know that he became one of the well-off young men who associated with the philosopher Socrates. According to Diogenes Laertes, the two first met in a narrow alley. Socrates had put his walking stick across it and prevented Xenophon from passing by. He then asked him the location of where men were made good and virtuous. When Xenophon acknowledged that he did not know, Socrates replied, Follow me then and learn. Xenophon makes it clear in his works that Socrates improved his intellect and shaped his moral outlook. In fact, as we discussed in the last episode, his admiration for him is evident in his four Socratic dialogues, which were written after Socrates' death, and presumably in rivalry with some of Plato's more famous depictions of their former master. There are the Oikonomicus, or Economics, in which Socrates explains how to ideally manage one's household. The Symposion, which recounts an evening at a light-hearted dinner party, where Socrates and other attendants discuss what attribute they take most pride in. The Op Omnum Umata, or the Memorabilia, which is a collection of dialogues that present Socrates' moral principles. And the Apologia, Socrates pro Dicastus, or the Apology of Socrates to the Jurors, which reports a legal defense given by Socrates at his trial. Xenophon probably played his part in the defense of Athens in the very last years of the Peloponnesian War, although he is not explicitly connected with any certain battles. He may also have been involved in the political upheavals and the immediate aftermath of Athens' defeat. In particular, as we discussed in episode 108, he likely fought against the exiled Democrats as a cavalryman under the Thirty Tyrants. How willing a participant he was in their atrocities is questionable, though and rumors suggested that he was the lover of the regime's leader, Critias. He certainly belonged to the social class for which pederasty may have been common. But although he later tried vehemently to distance himself from them, his sympathies were not entirely on the side of the democracy. From 402 to 400 BC, Xenophon left Athens and joined the large mercenary Greek army to help Cyrus the Younger seize the Persian throne from his brother Artaxerxes. He tells us that he had been invited to do so by Proxenus, his Boeotian Xenois, or guest friend, and a student of Gorgias. 
He likely was willing to accept this invitation because of his distaste for the restored democracy to Athens and his desire for an exciting adventure. Xenophon himself says that he intended to become a philos, or friend, to Cyrus. The Greek term implies that he wanted to enter into a relationship with the Persian prince, not for cash, but to establish a political friendship that might one day be advantageous for himself. But he also could have chosen his words carefully here, knowing full well of the bad image that mercenaries had developed at the time that he was writing. Xenophon also reports that he spoke to Socrates about his proposed expedition with Cyrus. Socrates told him to consult the Delphic Oracle to see whether or not he should go since he thought that friendship with the Persian prince might be seen as treason in the eyes of the Athenians, as Cyrus is widely believed to have supported the Spartans in their military operations against them. Xenophon took his master's advice and went to Delphi to seek the Oracle, but instead of posing the question that Socrates had suggested, Xenophon asked her for the names of the gods to whom he should sacrifice in order to achieve a successful return. When he returned to Athens and told Socrates of the oracle's advice, Socrates unsurprisingly chastised him for asking such a disingenuous question. Still, Socrates' advice hints that following Cyrus would prove dangerous to Xenophon, and as we will see, it turned out that way. In the spring of 401 BC, Xenophon arrived in Ephesus, where its glittering temple of Artemis and its statue of the goddess adorned with bull's testicles made a lasting impression on him. As he was leaving the city, he saw the first of many omens which would guide him in the years to come. An eagle perched at a distance to his right, foretelling good luck mixed with suffering. Undeterred, he continued to Sardis, where Cyrus was gathering his forces. There, they would set off by late spring. We will detail the journey in more detail later in the episode, but long story short, Cyrus lost and was killed in Mesopotamia, and the Greeks had to fight their way back home against hostile forces on all sides. He left an account of this experience in a work that is called in Greek the Anabasis, which means the march back. Cyrus, though, only plays an important role in its beginning. Written in seven books, it traces the history of Cyrus in Book 1, and of the retreat of the Greek mercenaries from the Persian Empire, books 2 through 7, from 401 to 400 BC. Because he chose to fight with Cyrus, Xenophon would earn the ire of the victorious Artaxerxes. During his retreat, Xenophon was chosen as one of the generals. In particular, he was co-commander in the rear of the mercenary army as it fought its way northward, being harassed by native tribes and Persian forces, and enduring harsh winter conditions until they came to the Black Sea coast and ultimately the Hellespont. Later, Xenophon and his Hellenica did not cover these topics, but instead referred the reader to the Anabasis by Themistogenes of Syracuse. According to Plutarch, Xenophon had attributed his Anabasis to a pseudonym in order to distance himself as a subject from himself as a writer in the minds of his readers. Most scholars accept this opinion and correlate Themistogenes of Syracuse with Xenophon himself. It also should be noted that the Anabasis, while a first-hand account by Xenophon, should also be approached with some level of caution because it is selective and reveals a lot of how Xenophon wanted his role and that of the Greek mercenaries to be perceived. He presents himself as a model leader who is accessible, shares the toils of common troops, keeps the soldiers moving, and takes the initiative to help them. 
He very rarely, if ever, has anything negative to say about his role. He even constantly inspired his men with stories from history and mythology, comparing their journey to Homer's Odyssey, reorganizing Black Sea landmarks from Jason's voyage with his Argonauts, and recalling stirring episodes from the Persian Wars almost a century before. Some scholars have speculated that Xenophon did this to manipulate his reputation because of his fellow Athenians, who later exiled him. However, in his work, which took place well before he returned to Athens, but was written after he was exiled, he stresses how he considered not even returning to Athens at all. This is a very odd thought for him to mention if his intention was for a recall. It also has been suggested that he wrote his memoir to demonstrate the Persian Empire's weakness, and so encouraged the Greeks at large to attack them. Unfortunately, there is very little evidence in the text to determine when he wrote it, so as to better understand his purpose and the audience by which it was intended to be read. However, a later Byzantine lexicographer named Stephanos quotes four short citations from another Anabasis written by one of his co-generals, Sophonetus of Stymphalus, who was the oldest and who Xenophon portrays as overly cautious and tactically weak. Not much is learned from these, but it has been argued that Sophonetus' account, if it even existed, and wasn't a later oral narrative that was misattributed, was a source for the 4th century BC historian Ephorus, who, as we have seen, was himself a source for Diodorus in the 1st century BC. His account severely downplays the role of Xenophon, and doesn't even mention him during the retreat. Furthermore, no other general plays the role of savior in Diodorus that Xenophon gives to himself. Still, all of this is just speculation. In any case, after their successful return to Byzantion, Xenophon and part of his mercenary forces joined the service first of the Thracian king Suthis, and then the Spartans, in their attempt to liberate the Asiatic Greeks from Persia in the early 390s BC. It was because of this that he came into contact with the Spartan king, Agesilaus II, and the two quickly formed admiration and respect for each other. The Spartan king became his patron, and Xenophon often praised Agesilaus' ability in his work. In fact, he considered him an unsurpassed example of all civil and military virtues, and after he died, would write a minor biographical work about him, titled Agesilaus, though his tone is too eulogistic to be considered objective. However, in his Hellenica, he does show him with some blemishes. Still, throughout Xenophon's writing, there is a tendency for him to lionize powerful men. In any case, the outbreak of the Corinthian War from 395 to 387 BC led to the recall of Agesilaus to defend Sparta against a coalition of anti-Spartan states that included Athens. The presence of Xenophon and his army against the Athenians in 394 BC at the Battle of Coronea likely was what led him to be formally exiled from Athens on a charge of laconism, meaning he was pro-Spartan though it's also likely that he'd been exiled earlier on a charge of Medism for being pro-Persian through his military involvement with Cyrus, as we mentioned. A third possibility is that it was on the insistence of Artaxerxes, who subsidized the anti-Spartan coalition when the Athenians were looking for Persian help. Whatever the cause, Xenophon never expresses bitterness about his exile, and so presumably he accepted that he had done something to deserve it. Afterwards, he his Athenian wife, Philosia, and two sons, Gryllus and Diodorus, moved to the Peloponnese. 
They settled on a country estate at Skilos in Trophilia, just south of the Panhellenic Sanctuary at Olympia, which was given to him by the Spartans in compensation for his services. According to Plutarch, allegedly with the backing of Agesilaus, his two young sons were allowed to undergo the Spartan educational system known as the Agoge, which allowed them to become members of the class of Trophimoi Exenoi, or Spartan-raised foreigners. At Scylus, he bought a piece of land for Artemis and built her a temple, a miniature replica of the one he saw at Ephesus, complete with a cypress wood copy of the Golden Colt statue. He inaugurated it with a grand festival in her honor, which turned into an annual celebration. In one digression, Xenophon discusses how many would come to the festival and feast on the sacrificial victims, and the young men, including his own sons, would hunt stags and boars, dedicating a tenth of their kills to the goddess. While at Scylus, around 390 BC, Xenophon wrote a series of short treatises about the sort of leisurely activities men of his status spent their time on at their country estates. Two are focused on horses, which makes sense because he was of the equestrian class and was a cavalry commander. The first, titled Peri Hippicus, or On Horsemanship, deals with the selection, care, and training of horses in general, while the second, titled Hipparchicos, deals with the training and duties of a cavalry officer. The third, Crinegeticos, or On Hunting, describes the proper methods of hunting with dogs and the advantages of hunting in general. In particular, he gives advice on what we know today as beagling, that is, hunting hares on foot with hounds that track their prey by scent. It is very likely that Xenophon's exile was formally lifted at the Peace of Antalcidas, or King's Peace, in 386 BC, which ended the Corinthian War and stipulated that all exiles, except convicted murderers, should be restored in all relevant cities. But he didn't return to Athens as he preferred the delights of his new life at Scylus. However, his Peloponnesian paradise wasn't permanent, because 15 years later, the devastating defeat of the Spartans in 371 BC by the Thebans at the Battle of Leuctra, and the reacquisition of Trophilia by Elis as a consequence, caused his estate to be confiscated, and forced Xenophon and his family to move. The remaining years of his life seem to have been spent in Corinth. Some speculate that he may have also spent some time back in Athens, which in the 360s BC had joined Sparta in an anti-Theban alliance, because his son Gryllus was killed fighting for the Athenian cavalry at the Battle of Mantinea in 362 BC. We know this because Gryllus's gallant exploits were commemorated in epitaphs and eulogies, and were depicted by the painter Euphranor in one of Athens' chief public buildings, the painted Stoa in the Agora. Those who argue for the revocation of his exile and return to Athens at some point in the 360s point to the facts that his son fought for Athens and that he himself wrote the aforementioned Hipparchicos, a work directed in detail at an Athenian audience, and seeking to help the Athenian military effort. They argue that he went back at some point after 366 BC, which was when the Corinthians expelled their Athenian garrison. But scholars are still divided on this opinion. Furthermore, the Poroi Peri Prododon, or Ways and Means, dated to 355 BC, is believed to be the last work written by Xenophon. With the collapse of the Second Athenian League, the city faced financial ruin, and in this treatise are his suggestions for them to alleviate their economic situation at the time. 
The treatise comprises six chapters, and it is addressed to the boule. Xenophon proposes measures so that Athens could support itself without relying on the profits of war and empire. His attempt to create a new type of imperialism that was supported more by peace and Athens itself instead of impressive behavior on other cities. So it seems that even if he didn't move back to Athens, he still felt fondly about his birth city. In any case, Corinth is where the ancient tradition claimed that he died in 354 BC, though he may have been buried in his beloved Scyllus, where later Greeks claimed to have seen his tomb. For all of his swashbuckling adventures, Xenophon made his most lasting mark as an author. In total, 15 works have been attributed to him, and fortunately, all 15 have survived. Scholars generally believe that 14 were indeed written by him, while only one is doubted. Their order and date are much debated, which is why we are discussing them thematically rather than chronologically. Although his works cover many different genres, his style is generally consistent, and many themes surface, especially the desirability of physical toil and self-control, and the importance of good leadership for states and armies. Xenophon's works show him to be a writer of great originality, keen to push the boundaries, develop old genres, and invent new ones. They are written in plain Attic Greek, which is why they have often been used in translation exercises for contemporary students of the ancient Greek language since the mid-19th century. In fact, Diogenes Laertes observed that Xenophon was known as the Attic Muse because of the sweetness of his diction, and he later earned the name the Attic Bee, as bees were proverbial for elegance. Rhetoricians praised the grace and purity of his style, while many writers of prose history copied him. For example, the 2nd century AD historian Arion drew from his title Anabasis for his work on Alexander, and he continued to imitate Xenophon by writing philosophical memoirs and a work on hunting. As we mentioned in episode 104, Thucydides stops his history of the Peloponnesian War, and Xenophon starts his Hellenica in the autumn of 411 BC, which was by no means a natural breaking point. Therefore, Xenophon is evidently envisioning his work as a continuation of Thucydides' history down to the Battle of Mantinea in 362 BC. He finished this work only about five or so years later, around 356 BC, and had in mind an audience that also knew a great detail about a subject matter, which can create some difficulties for the modern reader. He intended to tell his readers some new things, but mainly he aimed to give them a familiar story with his own slant wanting to make the messages clear that he thought could be seen in the recent past. When we turn to Diodorus for comparison, his account generally doesn't contradict Xenophon, but shows that Xenophon is selective, whether because he believes he has gotten a hold of a trustworthy source and looks no further, or because there is a particular point that he wants to emphasize. Following the end of the war and the fall of the Thirty, Xenophon's selectivity grows even quirkier. For example, in Book 2, he deals at length with the deterioration and fall of the Thirty, which he himself witnessed, but passes over what was happening outside Athens at the time. In addition, after Book 2, it doesn't even seem like he is trying to write the same sort of history, and the style of this Greek is remarkably different too. So he seems to really try to mold his style for the war in the same manner as Thucydides, and then switches gears afterwards. One explanation could be that he wrote the first part of the Hellenica much earlier than the rest, 
possibly in the mid-380s BC, while the rest was written years later between 362 and 356 BC. Another criticism of Xenophon is that there is less reassuring detail and more departures from strict chronological order. It ceases to proceed analytically, or year by year, and it is often difficult to tell which year the narrative has reached as one progresses through the work. Furthermore, in quite a few places, he doesn't provide enough information to determine exactly where we are chronologically. Even worse is that the work is episodic. Much is written as a series of anecdotes, and it is hard to understand why we are told a great detail about some incidents, and little or nothing about others. More seriously, for those who want to use it as a historical source, it shows very little interest in areas and episodes in which Sparta was not in some way involved. He seems to have chosen his episodic and anecdotal history to recreate the past more vividly, and one of the main concerns of his anecdotes are leadership, whether good or bad, and noble deeds dealing with courage and loyalty. So he had another intent in mind than what we might expect to see from a historian, as a moralist along the lines of Plutarch, for example. Casting his narrative in the form of anecdotes is not the only way in which Xenophon enlivens it. The speeches he writes also have that effect, but whereas Thucydides used them largely as vehicles for his own analysis of events, they function much differently in Xenophon, who aimed to depict the moral character of his speakers, particularly by what they say, and partly by differentiating the style in which they say it. Although ancient commentators generally saw Xenophon as a particularly fair-minded writer, modern scholars often take the opposite view that he is prone to political bias and the grinding of axes throughout his narrative. In particular, as a cavalryman himself, he repeatedly emphasizes its role, almost as strong and undiluted as his dislike of Thebes, implying his bias in favor of Sparta, something we might expect from someone who fought for Sparta against his own city, who lived for 20 years in Spartan-controlled territory, and who wrote a praise biography for a Spartan king. And he certainly displays an admiration for Spartan institutions and for other Spartan sympathizers. But he writes less wholeheartedly about the current Spartans at the time that he published his Hellenica, and throughout it, unsatisfactory Spartans pop up as a sort of moral lesson that these current leaders need to return to the ways of their great ancestors. Also to this end, he wrote a constitution of the Lacedaemonians to remind the Spartans of their heritage. More on that shortly. Still, his bias towards Sparta is even clearer if we consider what he omitted. For example, there are only faint glimmers of the brutality and cruelty with which the Spartans behaved at the end of the Peloponnesian War throughout the Aegean, which we see in the fragments of Ephorus, for example. Moreover, Xenophon tended to tell us about incompetence and personal weakness of individual Spartans, rather than cruelty and financial dishonesty the complaints we find in other sources. All in all, he is particularly ambivalent towards Athens. On occasion, he seems to rejoice in their failures, but he fought for the country as a cavalryman, and whether or not he returned to Athens, he still thought of himself as an Athenian. Xenophon also held the belief that, despite the misfortunes of good people, the gods are just and benevolent. For many religious-minded Greeks, their misfortunes did not create a giant problem, because they saw the gods as arbitrary and prone to envy, the way in which they often appear in Herodotus. However, there were also a few rationalists, like Thucydides, who did not think the gods responded much to human affairs. 
Xenophon differed from both groups. Although he gives the gods an important role in his history, he does not allow his belief in divine causations to stop him from exploring the human causes of the same events. For example, the sins of the Spartans are the cause of their downfall, but he still explains the various reasons why that occurred and not just blamed it on supernatural reasons. However, historians who prefer to find deep causes for events in Xenophon will see him as superficial. Still, although Xenophon sometimes makes mistakes, sometimes due to carelessness on his own part, or due to being led astray by his sources, it seems safe to say that he didn't tell any outright lies and can be generally trustworthy. However, on occasion, he deliberately misled, and it is difficult to draw a line between outright deceitfulness and merely putting a spin on the facts that were influenced by his own bias. Politically speaking, Xenophon has long been associated with an opposition to democracy. Although he seems to prefer oligarchy, especially in light of his associations with Sparta, none of his works explicitly attack democracy. Some scholars even go so far as to say his views aligned with those of the more moderate democracy in his time. However, certain works of Xenophon seem to show his oligarchic politics. His main work, which serves as a forum for him to subtly outline his political and moral philosophy, is the Syropedia, or Kuroipedia in Greek. Padia means education, but education here doesn't mean formal learning, but how one was raised informally. It is a curiously hybrid work, part military handbook, part moral treatise, and part historical novel, in which Xenophon revisits episodes familiar to readers of Herodotus. It is generally agreed that Xenophon did not intend this work to be taken as history, though, and so its validity on many aspects can be questioned. In fact, there are many occasions in which Herodotus outright contradicts Xenophon. Essentially, this work is partly historical and partly fictional biography as a political romance describing the idealized development of the qualities that Xenophon believed an ideal ruler should have. It describes Cyrus's heroism in battle and governance, and his abilities as a king and a legislator. Classical authors believe that Xenophon composed his work with this version of the ideal ruler in response to the Republic of Plato, or possibly vice versa. However, some modern scholars tend to believe that Xenophon's true intent here was to show the follies in empire and monarchy. Although it was through Cyrus's greatness that he created the Persian Empire, it began to decline with his death. Therefore, he sought to show that empires lack stability and could only be maintained by a person of remarkable prowess, such as Cyrus. Therefore, Cyrus is embellished greatly in the narrative. Xenophon displays him as a lofty, temperate man who is surreal and not subject to the defects of other men. By showing that only someone who's almost beyond human could conduct such an enterprise as running an empire, Xenophon indirectly attacks the imperial model. And so he also reflects on the state of his own reality in an even more indirect fashion using the example of the Persians to decry the attempts at empire made by both Athens and Sparta. Although partially graced with hindsight, having written the Syropedia after the downfall of Athens in the Peloponnesian War, this work criticizes the Greek attempts at empire and monarchy and shows how they were doomed to failure from the very beginning. In additional works, 
Xenophon subtly relates not only his criticism of empire, but his distaste for democracy and his support of oligarchy. Xenophon has often been linked to an Athenaeon Politeia, or a constitution of the Athenians. Also called the Old Oligarch, it is a short political pamphlet breaking down the Athenian constitution. As we discussed in episode 88, it detests the democracy of Athens and the poorer classes, but argues that the Periclean institutions are well designed for their deplorable purposes, and it discusses specific aspects of the Athenian system and how they work to advance Athenian democratic interests. In particular, it focuses on the interdependency between Athens' naval supremacy and its democracy, and examines three features that the author considered characteristic of the Athenian democratic system. These were that the system benefited the common people, allowed social vices to be common, and was not interested in the pursuit of eunomia, or good order. Although it was once considered a minor work of Xenophon, the scholarly consensus is that he did not write it. Since one particular observation in it predates 424 BC, most scholars also believe that it was written in the early 420s, during the demagogueries of Cleon and Hyperbolus, which means Xenophon was still a child, and thus could not have written it. Even some ancient evidence supports this, as Diogenes Laertes tells us that the 1st century BC scholar Demetrius of Magnesia denied the work's authenticity. Still, the anonymous author is sometimes called Pseudo-Xenophon, since it once was wrongly attributed to him. Although the real Xenophon seems to prefer oligarchy over democracy, none of his veritable works so ardently decry democracy as does this. One political treatise that can be genuinely attributed to Xenophon, though, is the Lacedaemonian Politeia, or the Constitution of Sparta. As we discussed in episodes 22 and 23, the Spartans wrote nothing about themselves, or if they did, they are lost. Therefore, what we know about them comes exclusively from outsiders like Xenophon. His affinity for the Spartans is clear, as well as his penchant for oligarchy. In the opening line, he writes, quote, It occurred to me one day that Sparta, though among the most thinly populated of states, was evidently the most powerful and most celebrated city in Greece, and I fell to wondering how this could have happened, but when I considered the institutions of the Spartans, I wondered no longer. End quote. Xenophon then provides a detailed overview of Spartan political, social, and military institutions at the beginning of the 4th century BC. It was during his exile in the Peloponnese that he likely wrote this treatise, as it dates to the period between 387 and 375 BC. It is the only contemporary account of Spartan society which survives. The only other source is the much later Life of Lycurgus by Plutarch, and similarly, Xenophon describes all Spartan laws and practices as deriving from Lycurgus's reforms. Since Xenophon's account is first-hand, as his two sons were sent to Sparta to be educated, and he knew many leading Spartans personally, he is considered our most reliable source for Sparta. But his admiration for Spartan institutions is well documented, so we must keep in mind that it may have influenced his account. Because of this, most scholars would categorize his work as an homage to Sparta. In the treatise, he celebrated Sparta for its eunomia, or good laws. He writes, quote, The state of Sparta, with good reason, outshines all other states in virtue, since she alone has made the attainment of a high standard of nobility a public duty. End quote. 
Like Xenophon, most of Sparta's admirers were people whose political views favored aristocracy. Living very often in city-states like Athens, which had been impacted by a series of political upheavals and lost a great war because of it, they looked enviously at Spartan society and its constitution with its order and discipline. Sparta had avoided the tyranny of many other states by compromising at an early stage and by adopting a constitution that had some features of monarchy, oligarchy, and democracy. Xenophon's work consists of 15 chapters. The first 13 enumerate the practices in civil and military institutions that ostensibly show how Sparta became a powerful and renowned city-state, while the last two diverge from that focus and concentrate instead on Sparta's decline as a rebuke of contemporary Spartans for being untrue to their own ideals. In doing so, he details how the contemporary state of Sparta has become corrupt and no longer obeys the laws of Lycurgus. He further explains how this decline in Spartan morals and prestige has caused the other Greek city-states to no longer look up to Sparta for leadership, but instead to team up against Sparta to prevent them from ruling over the rest of Greece. Xenophon ends the treatise by telling how, despite its declining state, Sparta has remained faithful to its monarchy. Finally, Xenophon wrote a philosophical dialogue about happiness called Hero. It's written like his other Socratic dialogues, but has nothing to do with Socrates. Instead, it is an imagined conversation between Hero, a tyrant of Syracuse in the 5th century BC, and the lyric poet Simonides. The dialogue is a response to the assumption that a tyrant's life is more pleasant than that of a commoner. Having lived as both, Hero breaks down this misconception, arguing that a tyrant does not have any more access to happiness than anyone else. In it, Simonides tries to show Hero how he could live in happiness if he adopted less arbitrary and more beneficial policies towards his subjects. As we mentioned, Xenophon's most famous work is his Anabasis, or March Back, which records his experience fighting in Persia as a mercenary. Written in seven books, it provides the history of Cyrus and of the retreat of the Greek mercenaries across Mesopotamia and Asia Minor, from 405 to 400 BC. It is sometimes revered as one of the greatest adventure stories in human history. It offers a glimpse of Greek soldiers encountering a foreign world and gives a unique insight into the character of a Greek army on the march, what it was like for soldiers at leisure, and the role of Greek religion in the army, from vows and sacrifices to omens. It also offers insight into a broader human experience. Further information about this period of Persian history can be found in the excerpts of Stesius, who was Artaxerxes II's court physician, which have been preserved in the work of Photius. He wrote a history of Persia in 23 books, called Persica, which was written in opposition to Herodotus and the Ionic dialect, and professedly was founded on Persian royal archives. We also have Plutarch's Lives of Artaxerxes II and Lysander, and parts of Book 14 of Diodorus's Library of History. Xenophon begins the Anabasis in the year 405 BC. As we discussed in episode 107, Darius had fallen ill and called his youngest son, Cyrus, to his deathbed in Susa. As Cyrus traveled back east, he was accompanied by 300 Greek mercenary hoplites under the command of Xenius of Arcadia. After he arrived back in Susa, 
His father Darius died a short time later, in 404 BC, after ruling for 35 years. According to Plutarch, Cyrus's mother, Perisatis, had favored him and wanted him on the throne. She believed that Cyrus was the rightful heir to the throne because he was the firstborn to Darius while he was king. Despite this, Plutarch claims that Darius had declared his eldest son, Arsikos, also called Arsus, to be his heir while on his deathbed. It seems very unlikely, though, that Darius would have waited until the very end of his life to name a successor, and Arsikos' natural position of successor as the eldest son suggests that he had been named as crown prince years earlier. Whatever the case, upon his ascension to the Persian throne, Arsikos changed his name to Artaxerxes II. He would rule from 404 to 358 BC. He had previously married Statera, who hailed from an important noble Persian family that could count the two Hadarnes as their ancestors. The eldest Hadarnes was one of the seven conspirators who overthrew the pseudo Smyrdas and elevated Darius I to the throne, while the younger Hadarnes was commander of the Immortals during the second Persian invasion of Greece. In any case, Statera bore Artaxerxes a son named Ochus and after his ascension, he quickly propped him up as his future heir to the throne. Statera was very popular with the people, allegedly because she left the curtains open when she drove by in her carriage, which allowed the people to approach and greet her, and because she talked to the commoners, things that were atypical for Persian royalty. Naturally, she and her family would support her husband in his quarrel with his brother Cyrus, and even criticized her sharp-tongued mother-in-law, Perisatis. As the queen and the queen mother both tried to be the key political influence on the king, the women became bitter rivals. Cyrus was to remain satrap of Lydia and commander in the maritime provinces, but he could not accept this, and Plutarch reports that within days of Artaxerxes' coronation, he had made plans to have his brother assassinated. At that moment, the royal family was on their way from Susa to Pasargidae, where Artaxerxes would receive the royal initiation at the hands of the Persian priests. According to Plutarch, the candidate for initiation must pass through the sanctuary of a warlike goddess, whom one might conjecture to be similar to Athena. After laying aside his own robe, he must put on that which Cyrus the Great supposedly wore before he became king. Then, he must eat a cake of figs, chew some turpentine wood, and drink a cup of sour milk. Whatever else is done besides this is unknown to outsiders. But as Artaxerxes was about to perform these rites, Cyrus's plot was revealed by Tissaphernes. He warned Artaxerxes that his brother was planning to kill him once he entered the sanctuary and took off his robe. Tissaphernes, if you remember from episode 107, was the former satrap who had lost his lands to Cyrus and then became an advisor in the king's court. Needless to say, these two did not like each other. It's impossible to know whether Cyrus actually launched a coup or Tissaphernes made it up to get rid of a rival. Regardless, when Tissaphernes brought forward witnesses who claimed to have knowledge of the plot, Cyrus was immediately arrested on charges of treason. It was only through the intercession of their mother, Perisatis, that he was pardoned and sent back to a satrapy. However, Cyrus did not come off unblemished for his alleged coup. Upon his arrival back in Anatolia, he found that his capital at Sardis had been taken from him by Orontes, the garrison commander, on the orders of Artaxerxes. He was able to subdue the revolt, but he lost control of the majority of his vast satrapy. Most importantly, 
he lost the Ionian Greek polis within his lands to Tissaphernes, who had been reinstated as the satrap of Caria. Tissaphernes then overthrew all of the pro-Cyrus regimes that had been installed by Lysander and the Spartans towards the end of the Peloponnesian War, and directed vast amounts of tribute to Artaxerxes, who was planning a campaign against Egypt. If it were not for the pressing issue of a revolt in Egypt, Artaxerxes might well have tried to rid himself of Cyrus that year. But fortunately for Cyrus, Artaxerxes would spend the next three years attempting to subjugate the rebels. According to Diodorus, the situation in Persian Egypt had become volatile in the last decade of the 400s BC, as an Egyptian named Amenirdisu, or Amirtius in Greek, led guerrilla actions in the western Naya Delta around his home city of Sais. He may have been a grandson of another Amirtius of Sais, who is known to have carried on a rebellion against Persia with the help of Athens during the time of the First Peloponnesian War. If this were the case, he had a revolutionary spirit in his blood. Like his grandfather, he took the opportunity to use the animosity between Athens and Persia to his own advantage. At some point, Amirtius led the Egyptian revolutionists to expand throughout the whole Nile Delta and into Phoenicia. He likely expected Athenian assistance in this endeavor, just as they had done almost 50 years earlier. But the devastation of the Athenian fleet at Agos Potami meant that the Egyptians would receive no support. Still, following the death of Darius, Amirtius launched a coup and officially declared himself as the new king of Egypt, with his capital at Sais. And so this was the situation as soon as Artaxerxes came to the throne. The rich lands of Egypt were of the utmost importance for the Persian Empire as a whole, not least because of its vast supply of food. Egypt had often revolted against Persian rule, but never before had a single rebel dynast established himself such a vast swath of the country. If Artaxerxes did not react, the situation could become unfixable. Therefore, according to Isocrates, for the next three years, Artaxerxes would assemble a large army in Phoenicia, under the command of Abrocomos, the satrap of Syria. His orders were to march into Egypt and squash the rebellion. But before this could happen, political problems with Cyrus caused Artaxerxes to have to redirect his attention elsewhere, which gave the Egyptians sufficient time to throw off the Achaemenid yoke and consolidate their power. The spread of native Egyptian influence was a gradual process, though, as papyri from Elephantine shows that Upper Egypt still remained under Persian control until sometime between 400 to 398 BC. Even so, Amirtius' successful insurrection inaugurated Egypt's last significant phase of independence under native sovereigns, lasting for about 60 years. He would be the only pharaoh of the 28th dynasty of Egypt, though. It's not stated as to why, but a general named Nepharud, Nepharitus in Greek, rose up against Amirtius and defeated him in an open battle in October of 399 BC. Amirtius was then executed at Memphis, and Nepharitus crowned himself pharaoh, inaugurating the 29th dynasty of Egypt, before transferring the capital from Sais to his home city of Mendes, located in the eastern Nile Delta. So that's where we will leave Egypt for the time being. Meanwhile, back in western Anatolia, if Cyrus had been innocent and Tissaphernes had made the story up, Artaxerxes' fear turned out to be self-fulfilling anyways. The dual combination of being dishonored and his resentment for his arrest had made him more eager than ever to ensure that he would never again be subjected to his brother. 
and so he now unquestionably began to yearn for the kingdom. Also, the loss of income and the growing animosity towards Tissaphernes meant that conflict with both was now imminent. So over 403-402 BC, Cyrus began to take steps to gather a core of loyal supporters. Whenever any visitors came to him from Artaxerxes, he made sure to treat them so well that they were on his side by the time they returned home. He also ensured that all those on his staff were competent soldiers and were fiercely loyal only to him. But Cyrus still needed a competent commander, so he turned to Clearchus of Sparta, the Harmost of Byzantion, who had recently gotten himself into trouble back home. Diodorus records that previously, in 403 BC, the city of Byzantion had suffered serious difficulties, partly because of factional strife and partly because of a war that they were waging with some neighboring Thracians. So Clearchus returned to Sparta and appealed to the E-Force, asking to be given a force to settle the political dissensions and to protect the city and the neighboring Greeks from Thracian attacks. He was granted that force, and so taking with him a large body of mercenaries, he defeated the Thracian tribes and in the process, gained the unofficial support of the Greek cities that he had relieved. However, while he did manage to fix the internal strife, he did so by making himself tyrant of Byzantion. He did this by inviting the Byzantines' chief magistrates to attend a festival of some kind, where he gathered them up and put them to death. Then, he seized a group of 30 prominent Byzantines, put a cord around their necks, and strangled them to death. After taking their property, he then picked out the wealthiest among the remaining citizens and launched false charges against them. Some were executed, while others were driven into exile. Having acquired a large amount of money and having assembled a great body of mercenaries, he was able to secure his tyranny. When the E-4s back in Sparta learned of this, they sent ambassadors to order him to lay down his tyrannical power. But Clearchus ignored the messengers, and when they returned to Sparta, he was instantly declared an outlaw by the E-4s. As a result, they sent an army against him under the command of Pantheotus. On learning of his approach, Clearchus left command of the garrison of Byzantium to his right-hand man, Helixus of Megara, and transferred his mercenary army and his treasure to Celembria, as he assumed, on account of the many crimes which he had committed against the Byzantines, that they would quickly flip the city against him. He met Pantheotus and the Spartan army in battle at a place called Porus. The struggle lasted for a long time, but the Spartan forces prevailed, and Clearchus's mercenary troops were defeated. They quickly fled back to Celembria and shut themselves in. But later, before the Spartans could arrive and set up a siege, they managed to slip away during the night, crossing over to Ionia. When Cyrus learned that a Greek mercenary force in high fighting condition was nearby, he sent ambassadors with 10,000 Persian derricks, asking Clearchus to help him claim the throne from his brother. Clearchus accepted, not because of the money, but because he knew that sooner or later, he would have to face his fellow Spartans, since he was still considered an outlaw. Therefore, it would behoove him to have the potential next Persian emperor on his side. Then, Cyrus, believing that Clearchus possessed the daring needed for his bold undertaking, supplied him with even more funds, and instructed him to hire as many more mercenaries as was possible. Cyrus also sent ambassadors directly to Sparta to appeal for help. They managed to obtain Spartan support after asking the Spartans to show themselves as a good friend to Cyrus 
as he had been to them during their war against Athens. The ephors thought that this request was just, and so they immediately sent messengers to their admiral Samius, with orders to sail to Ephesus, and to help Cyrus in whatever way he needed. At his disposal, he had 35 triremes, 25 according to Diodorus. The ephors also agreed to send 700 hoplites, again 800 according to Diodorus, under the command of a Spartan general named Kerosophos. They were joined by 25 triremes, 50 according to Diodorus, under Tamos the Egyptian. Meanwhile, Cyrus also encouraged the Ionian cities to revolt against Tissaphernes. Many flocked to his banner, but others did not, as they took a more pragmatic response, waiting first to see which Persian overlord would be victorious. For those that did flip, Cyrus ordered Xeneas of Arcadia to place garrisons in their cities as protection, while he secretly began collecting more troops for his future revolt, both from his provinces and from Greek mercenaries. In addition, he instructed all of the commanders in charge of each garrison in these cities to hire as many Peloponnesian mercenaries as he could, and of the highest possible caliber. It just so happened that there were many seasoned Greek veterans of the Peloponnesian War in the vicinity of Ionia, who could be hired to serve as mercenaries. Finally, Cyrus began to call on all of his guest friends throughout his wider Greek network and ordered them to bring as many men as possible for a war that he claimed was to be waged against Tissaphernes. Cyrus's forces were growing quickly during 402 BC, but he did not wish to rouse the suspicion of his brother. So he also sent a message to Artaxerxes to insist that it was in preparation for a war with Tissaphernes, not him, and demanded that he legally be recognized again as the ruler of the Ionian cities, which their mother supported. At the same time, Cyrus continued to send the tribute from the Ionian cities that had flipped over to him from Tissaphernes so that his brother wouldn't suspect his disloyalty and would still view him as a dutiful subject. He also completely concealed the fact that he was assembling Greek mercenaries by never accumulating them in one place. In fact, Cyrus had various contingents laying siege to resistant cities in Ionia, another force fighting against the tribes of Mycia near the Hellespont, while others were collected and held back in Greece until the time that he needed them. By the winter of 402-401 BC, he had control over most of Ionia, with the exception of Miletus, the last holdout. But when word reached Tissaphernes that Miletus too was about to flip to Cyrus, he had some of their leaders put to death and sent some others into exile. Well, Cyrus responded to this adeptly. He took in the exiles, assembled an army, and one of his contingents besieged Miletus by both land and sea in an attempt to restore them. When the city of Miletus didn't fall so easily, though, Cyrus convinced the Milesian exiles to join him on his campaign instead, with the promise that if the expedition achieved its objectives, he would ensure that their native city is restored to them afterwards. By the following spring of 401 BC, all preparations for Cyrus's expedition had been made and a very large force had amassed at Sardis. Therefore, Cyrus was now ready to march east. In his absence, he appointed Persians who he trusted to be satraps of Lydia, Phrygia, Ionia, and Aeolus. Very little is certain about the constituent parts of his army, though. The vast majority of his army was his Asiatic contingents, led by Arius, a Persian who was his second-in-command and a close friend. Xenophon reports their number as 100,000, and Diodorus as 70,000 
but scholars believe it was probably closer to twenty to 25,000. Included in this number was the presence of a thousand cavalry from Paphlagonia, and possibly twenty scythes to chariots, though they do not appear in the battle narrative. Diodorus reports a total number of 13,000 mercenaries, which included 2,500 peltasts and 10,400 hoplites, who have become known as oimirioi, or the 10,000. They were composed of a thousand hoplites, 800 Thracian peltasts, and 200 Cretan archers, personally under Clearchus of Sparta, 4,000 hoplites under Xeneas of Arcadia, 1,500 hoplites and 500 light infantrymen under Proxenos of Boeotia, 1,000 hoplites under Sophonetus of Stymphalia, 500 hoplites under Socrates of Achaea, not to be confused with the philosopher, 300 hoplites and 300 peltasts under Pazion of Megara, 300 hoplites under Sosis of Syracuse, and 1,000 hoplites and 500 peltasts under Menon of Thessaly. Taking moderate estimates into consideration, Cyrus probably led an army of roughly 30 to 35,000, if not more. According to Diodorus, only to his officers did he announce the true object of the expedition which of course was to defeat his brother and to install himself as the king of Persia. However, Xenophon states that the only one who knew was his lead Greek commander, Clearchus of Sparta. At this point, Xenophon was not yet a general, so he definitely didn't know, and perhaps he suspected after the fact that Clearchus only knew. Whatever the case, the regular soldiers believed that they were going against the Pisidians, a warlike tribe in the Taurus Mountains in southwestern Anatolia just to the north of Lycia, to the east of Caria, and to the south of Lydia. This region, known as Pisidia after its people, was never obedient to the Persian Empire. Cyrus also feared that his men would refuse to fight if they knew the true intent of the expedition, so he reasoned not to tell them until the last moment when they couldn't back out. For this reason, during the march, he tried to curry their favor by providing abundant provisions. At the same time, his naval forces were given instructions to sail along the coast and to meet the army at Cilicia. While Cyrus's army was gathering at Sardis, after three years of preparations to put down the Egyptian revolt, Artaxerxes II had managed to accumulate a strong force of supposedly 300,000, which was collected in Phoenicia under Abrocomos, the satrap of Syria. This number is an obvious exaggeration, but the army would still have been very strong. Their success in Egypt likely would have been swift, but their plans to head south were halted by shocking news from Anatolia. Tissaphernes had been watching the actions of Cyrus, and he was not fooled. He knew that the force at Sardis was far too large for the Pisidians to be their true intent, so he traveled to the king as quickly as possible, with an entourage of about 500 horsemen. When he heard about Cyrus's army and that Cyrus was going to challenge him, Artaxerxes ordered Abrocomus to redirect his forces from Phoenicia and head east to meet him in Babylonia. Meanwhile, Cyrus's army set out from Sardis and marched eastward along the southern coast of Asia Minor, into the heart of the Persian Empire. After about three months, they came upon the pass into Cilicia, known as the Cilician Gates, or just the Gates. This pass is narrow and steep, and bordering on both sides are exceedingly high and inaccessible mountains. Walls stretched down one side from the mountains as far as the roadway, where gates had been built across it. When Cyanessus, the ruler of Cilicia, 
heard of the great size of the hostile army. He grew very concerned since he was no match for it in battle. So he sent his wife Epiaxa to Cyrus with money and a show of support. But Cyrus still could not be certain of Cyanesis' loyalties. So before the army began to march through the narrow gates, he sent Epiaxa home with a strong advance guard, led by Mino of Thessaly, to escort her back to Tarsus, the largest city and the capital of Cilicia. They took an alternate route through the mountains, though, so as to be on the lookout for any Cilician army that might have been sent to block the gates. Because they took an alternate route through the mountains, Mino's force suffered losses of 200, and they unleashed their anger and frustration on Tarsus by looting the city and the palace. Meanwhile, Cyrus's army began to march through the gates. By the time they made it to Tarsus, most of the city's inhabitants had abandoned their homes. One can imagine that Cyrus was not happy with this outcome, but he managed to alleviate the situation and then summoned Senesis back to Tarsus. The two reestablished an uneasy alliance, and Senesis agreed to join him as an ally against Artaxerxes. He likely only agreed to this because he had no other choice. Either way, as a result, he gave Cyrus a great deal of money for the army, and Cyrus gave him an assortment of gifts that were regarded as tokens of honor at the king's court. Senesis also sent along one of his two sons to lead a strong contingent of Cilicians for Cyrus's army. At the same time, though, Senesis had dispatched his other son secretly to Artaxerxes in order to reveal to him the full extent of the armaments that Cyrus had amassed, and to assure him that he was still faithful to the king. When the opportunity arose, he would desert Cyrus and join Artaxerxes' army. When Artaxerxes received Sinanesis' message that Cyrus was on the march, he summoned all of his army's various contingents to meet him at Ecbatana. After these all had assembled, Diodorus reports that Artaxerxes' army numbered 400,000 soldiers and cavalrymen, though these numbers are likely exaggerated, and scholars believe it was probably closer to 50 or 60,000. The army had a mixture of heavily and lightly armed infantry, archers, cavalrymen, and a large force of scythe chariots. In addition, the king had his personal bodyguard of 6,000 cavalrymen, and presumably his whole entourage, which would have included the 10,000 immortals and 1,000 hand-picked elite infantry. They immediately headed westwards, and in October of 401 BC, they arrived on the plain of Babylonia, near the Euphrates River, where they learned that the enemy was not far away. Accordingly, Artaxerxes dug a trench 60 feet wide and 10 feet deep and encircled the camp with the baggage wagons of his train like a wall. While Artaxerxes was preparing his defenses, Cyrus spent 20 days in Tarsus because the troops now suspected that the campaign was against the Persian king and refused to march on. As each man began to guess at the length of the distance which they would have to travel and the multitude of hostile peoples through whom they would have to pass, he was filled with the deepest anxiety. On top of that, word had begun to spread that it was a four-month march for an army to Bactria, and that a force of more than 400,000 soldiers had been mustered for the king. Consequently, the soldiers became most fearful and annoyed, and in anger at their commanders, they wished to remove them on the grounds that they had been betrayed. When Clearchus stepped in to squash their pending mutiny, they grew even angrier and began to throw stones at him. So he relented and convinced the men to send a delegation to Cyrus in order to ascertain the truth. Cyrus received this delegation and assured them that he was leading the army, not against Artaxerxes, 
but against Abrocomus in Phoenicia. When this was reported, the soldiers yielded, but they did ask for a pay raise. This request was granted, and they received an increase from one derrick a month to one and a half. Now that Cyrus's troops had resumed their former loyalty to him, his army then continued their march, and five days later, they came upon Isis, the last city of Cilicia, before entering the territory of Syria. There, they were joined by the Spartan fleet carrying the aforementioned 700 Spartan hoplites under Kerosophus. Diodorus says that these men had been sent under the pretext that they were friends of Cyrus, as the ephor still had not formally entered into the war. With the losses of Minos 200 men, the Greek contingent was now about 10,400. Then, as Cyrus's army traveled south into Syria, the combined Spartan and Persian fleet accompanied them by sea. When they arrived at the gates between Cilicia and Syria, they found the place clear of guards. Cyrus was elated, as he was greatly concerned that a strong body of troops would have occupied them before his arrival. Typically, the fort on the western side, defending Cilicia, was held by Cyanesis and a garrison of Cilicians, while the one on the eastern side, defending Syria, was held by a king's garrison. And so, after passing through the gates between Cilicia and Syria without a fight, Cyrus and his army turned south and marched a day to Miriandos, a Phoenician coastal city. There, now that he would be traveling inland, he sent off the part of the fleet that was still with him under Xeneas of Arcadia and Passion of Megara to make the return voyage to Ephesus, since it was of no further use to him. The men previously under Xeneas and Passion now merged into the ranks of Clearchus. According to Xenophon, though, it was believed that Xeneas and Passion left as they did not wish to continue on anymore because they were not duped by Cyrus's story. Either way, they sailed back to Ephesus, and after seven days, Cyrus led his men out from Neriandros in an eastward direction. Xenophon says that he aimed to reach the Euphrates River before Abrocomus could cut him off. But Abrocomus never intended to do such a thing, as he instead planned to join the Persian king. Therefore, Cyrus likely knew that he needed to cross the river and engage his brother before a sizable second army could join him, but he would be unsuccessful in this endeavor. After a march of 12 days, Cyrus's army arrived at the city of Thapsacos, which lies on the western bank of the Euphrates River in modern Syria. Here, they remained for four days during which time he summoned the Greek generals and told them of their expedition's true intent, if they hadn't figured it out yet. Cyrus told them that he intended to march in the direction of Babylon against his brother, and that they must inform their men of this and persuade them not to abandon him. After the generals were dismissed, they convened an assembly and disclosed the truth about Cyrus's campaign to their troops. The troops ultimately agreed to stand by Cyrus because he promised them that when they were victorious and entered Babylon triumphantly, he would give every man five minae of silver, plus daily wages for their service until they returned to Ionia. Their lack of resistance here certainly shows how unsurprised they were with the expedition's true intent. And so, with the generals and troops all aboard, Cyrus's army crossed the Euphrates and pressed southeast towards Babylon. In total, they marched for 14 days through eastern Syria. When they began, they were well provisioned, but once they passed the deserted town of Corsote, they entered the desert, and supplies quickly began to dwindle. Eventually, the men were forced to start feeding on their own pack animals, 
who themselves were starving without any grass or trees to feed on. After a grueling 13 days in the scorching heat, Cyrus's army finally came upon the prosperous city of Charmande, where they could buy new supplies. Here, rivalries flared up, and Clearchus overstepped his authority by punishing a man under the command of Mino for a dispute with one of his own men. This angered the man's fellow soldiers, and later that same day, when Clearchus passed Mino's encampment with only a small entourage, some of Mino's men began throwing axes and stones at Clearchus, who immediately fled the scene and sought the safety of his own camp. He then called upon his own troops and led them in a charge against those of Mino. Only the timely intervention of Cyrus was able to stop the two sides from killing each other. After matters calmed down, Cyrus's army moved out from Charmande and marched for three days through Babylonia. Along the way, Cyrus noticed that the enemy was burning fodder and anything else that might have been useful for an invading army. So a Persian nobleman named Orontes asked Cyrus for a force of a thousand cavalry to ride ahead with and stop them. Cyrus agreed and told him to take a small detachment from each of his cavalry commanders. Well, Orontes was the man who had tried to take Sardis from Cyrus, on the orders of Artaxerxes though, but this time he would double-cross him of his own volition. After getting Cyrus' approval, Orontes sent a messenger with a letter to Artaxerxes, stating that he would join the king with as many of Cyrus's cavalry as he could commandeer, and that he hoped the king would receive him as a loyal friend and relative. The messenger instead carried the letter to Cyrus. Immediately, Cyrus called together his Greek generals and 300 of his hoplites and asked for them to vote on how this treacherous man should be handled. They voted for his death. Orontes was taken away, and while Xenophon reports he was executed, nobody knew exactly how. On the night of the third day's march from Charmande through Babylonia, Cyrus halted his army on some plain and conducted a review of all of his forces, as he expected the arrival of his brother any day now. According to Xenophon, he found there to be 100,000 Persian troops, which is likely an exaggeration, 10,400 hoplites, 2,500 peltasts, and 200 scythe-bearing chariots. At daybreak on the following day, deserters from the king's army arrived with intelligence about the enemy, including the location of Artaxerxes' defensive trench, a day's march away, and his army's numbers, which were said to have been 1,200,000, with 200 scythe-bearing chariots, and 6,000 cavalrymen. Again, take these numbers with a huge grain of salt. Then, Cyrus summoned his Greek officers to discuss how they should fight such a battle and to try and raise their morale against such a larger foe. A sense of the fraternal hatred underlying Cyrus's ambitions does emerge at this point in particular, and at other times in Xenophon's account. For example, during the latest three days' march towards Babylonia, when the royal army still had not appeared, and Cyrus was asked if he thought that his brother would fight him, he replied, quote, If he really is the son of Darius and Perisatis, if he really is my brother, I won't gain this empire without a fight. End quote. Diodorus makes a passing comparison to Cyrus's brazen acknowledgement of his fratricidal desires as something of the chilling quality of Oedipus's sons. But Xenophon does not focus on the moral problems. The prize at stake in Cyrus's impetus attack on his brother is best revealed by some words of encouragement, though full of hyperbole, that he delivers to his officers at this point. Quote, My father's empire extends south to a region where men cannot live because of the heat, and north to a region where they cannot live because of the cold. 
My brother's friends govern all the territories between these two extremes. But if I'm victorious, I am bound to put my friends in charge of them. End quote. Hearing that they would gain control over a Persian satrapy if victorious, these, these words increased the spirit of his officers. The following day at dawn, Cyrus arranged his army into formation, readying for the battle he expected when he reached the king's defensive trench. But when they marched on the trench, they found it to be undefended. Further boosting his confidence, footprints and hoofprints could be seen on the ground beyond the ditch. Therefore, Cyrus and many others assumed this meant that Artaxerxes had fled and allowed his own army to become lax and lazy on their march eastwards. Therefore, Cyrus himself took fewer precautions as he marched after him. On the next day, he even traveled himself on a chariot with only a few men in battle order in front of him while the bulk of the army made their way in a chaotic fashion, with much of their weaponry and armor being carried on carts or by pack animals. This lackadaisical mentality would be a grave mistake, because the following morning, a scout brought news that a large army was heading towards them, which threw Cyrus's inattentive forces into further disarray as everyone scrambled to get into a proper battle order. Cyrus placed his Greek mercenaries in the place of honor on the right, which rested on the Euphrates River. They were all under the command of Clearchus of Sparta, who himself was positioned on the line's far right, as was the tradition with Greek hoplite armies. Proxenos commanded the center of the Greek wing, while Mino had the left. Cyrus's army was supported on its right flank by about a thousand cavalrymen from Paphlagonia and a number of Greek peltasts. On the left flank were the Asiatic troops from Phrygia and Lydia, and about a thousand cavalrymen under the command of Arius. Cyrus himself and the force of 10,000 immortals formed the center, the location where Persian monarchs traditionally placed themselves in the order of battle. Protecting him in the front were about 10,000 hand-picked Persian bodyguards, armed with Greek breastplates and swords, and 6,000 cavalrymen. Even the horses in Cyrus's squadron were equipped with protective armor. On the other hand, Artaxerxes, with his left beside the Euphrates River, took his position in the center, and stationed in front of his battle line were 200 scythe-bearing chariots, at some distance from each other. They were so-called as they were equipped with scythes that projected out sideways from their axles, so as to cut into pieces anything or anyone they met in order to break up an enemy line. According to Xenophon, both wings each had cavalry in white body armor and infantry donning wicker shields. They were under the command of Persian noblemen. In particular, Xenophon says that he only heard that Tissaphernes had led the left and gives no specifics for the other side. The vagueness of his description of Artaxerxes' line is a reflection of Xenophon's vision on the battlefield as he was stationed on the right side of Cyrus's army. Therefore, his knowledge of the detail on Cyrus's left and Artaxerxes' right is lacking. The two armies met in the early afternoon, just outside the small village of Canaxa, in the so-called Battle of Canaxa, about 45 miles north of Babylon, near the left bank of the Euphrates River. As Artaxerxes approached, Cyrus saw that his brother held a huge numerical advantage, and that his line was much longer. Since Cyrus knew that the outcome depended on the fate of the king, he won at Clearchus, the commander of the Greeks, who were his most formidable fighting force, to take the center against Artaxerxes and his elite Persian cavalry. Basically, he wanted his most capable unit to defeat Artaxerxes' most capable unit, 
Clearchus, though, was reluctant to open up a gap between his right wing and the Euphrates River, which could lead to the army's encirclement on both sides. So he disobeyed Cyrus's orders and remained on the right flank. Already in antiquity, he was criticized for his refusal, as relayed by Plutarch, but many scholars think his caution is justified. His hoplites were in a strong position by the river where they could not be outflanked, and to move his men would have left a large hole in the right, which the enemy would easily exploit. Moreover, it's not clear if Cyrus meant for him to attack from the position that the Greeks were already in, or to relocate in the battle formation to a more central position. Regardless, the close proximity of the enemy meant that neither idea was a viable one. Still, the fact that Clearchus disobeyed this order is a sign of the lack of control that Cyrus had over his army. So Cyrus reluctantly gave in and kept his forces in the center against those of his brother. Before the battle began, Xenophon, the main relator of the events at Kunaxa, who was probably some kind of mid-level officer at the time, approached Cyrus to ensure that all of the proper orders and dispositions had been made. Cyrus told him that they had, and that the sacrifices that traditionally took place before a battle promised success. Meanwhile, the Greeks waited anxiously as the watchword was passed through their lines. A watchword was a way to notify people of one's allegiance during the chaos of battle. In this case, it was the phrase Zeus Soter and Nike, Zeus the Savior and Victory. When the enemy was within 700 meters, the Greeks struck up their paean and began to advance. But for whatever reason, perhaps the billowing dust and dirt clouds from the desert, the experienced Greek mercenaries allowed their nerves to overcome them. Because of this, they fell into disorder as they came within range of Artaxerxes' archers, and as part of the phalanx surged forward, those who fell behind had to break into a run. Eventually, Everyone on the Greek right cried out their usual war cry to Enyalus, and raced towards the enemy's left. According to Diodorus, though, this was a deliberate tactic by Clearchus, and many started to bang on their shields with the shaft of their spears as they ran to frighten the horses on the chariots. Whatever the case, deliberate or not, the deafening noise of their charge had startled the horses, and before the Greeks were even within the range of enemy arrows, many bolted in every direction. According to Xenophon, as the Persians plowed into Clearchus's lines, the Greeks had anticipated the trajectory of the scythe chariots, and so they opened up a gap to allow them to pass. If this is true, this implies that the lines were back in formation after the running, that this was a drilled move that had been practiced, and that the formation must have been loose rather than the traditional model of a tight closed phalanx. In any case, Apart from one man who was stunned into immobility and struck by an unpiloted chariot, the Greeks remained unscathed and pressed on into the disrupted enemy lines, sending them into retreat. However, before Clearchus could take control of the situation, his men began to chase the Persians off the field. At the same time, Tissaphernes' cavalry had routed the Paphlagonians on Cyrus's left flank, though the Peltasts had a better position on the softer and higher ground of the levees and were able to inflict losses as they rode past. Tissaphernes' cavalry, though, did not attack the phalanx from the rear, but instead went straight for the Greek camp. Clearchus was helpless in stopping him from plundering Cyrus's camp and destroying their food supplies. His only hope now was to try and regroup his men before they became isolated miles away from the field. An account of the fighting on Cyrus's left and center is not found in Xenophon, who himself was on the right. But Plutarch does provide some information. 
According to him, Cyrus grew encouraged by the strong start of his Greek right, and since his left was shorter and likely to be outflanked, he decided to drive his center upon Artaxerxes' personal 600 bodyguards, which were led by Artaxerxes. In a bloody fight, Artaxerxes spotted Cyrus and hurled his javelin at him, but his armor held strong and deflected it. Then, in response, Cyrus hurled his own javelin, though he managed to strike Artaxerxes through the neck and collarbone area. With their commander dead, Artaxerxes' bodyguards began to retreat, giving Cyrus his first sighting of his brother. He shouted out, I see him, and rashly charged on to attack the men in front of the Persian king. After his horse was injured, Artaxerxes was swiftly given another one, but only to be unhorsed once more. A fraternal duel then ensued, with Artaxerxes taking a minor wound, before swiftly escaping to a hill overlooking the village of Kunaxa, along with a large body of cavalry. Ctesias was part of the entourage of Artaxerxes, and he brought medical assistance to the king by treating his flesh wound. According to Ctesias, it was alongside Cyrus when Artaxerxes was wounded, but this is unlikely, as both Xenophon and Diodorus agree that Arias was leading the left wing, which would have still been some distance away. In any case, Cyrus soon became enveloped by his brother's men, and with one placed javelin, he was struck in the head, fell from his horse, and died. In another version, Plutarch states that it was a young Persian soldier named Mithridates who struck Cyrus, causing him to fall from his horse. Some eunuchs found Cyrus and tried to bring him to safety, but a Kanyan man, among the king's camp followers, struck a vein behind his knee with a javelin, making him fall and strike his head on a stone, at which point he died instantaneously. No matter the version, Cyrus was dead, and a close friend of his named Artipatus leapt upon his corpse to protect it. But when he became surrounded, he pulled out his dagger and killed himself atop his fallen king. On Cyrus's death, his center quickly collapsed and Arias's troops on the left soon followed suit. When Artaxerxes heard the news, he was elated by the victory, and ordered his troops to accompany him down from the hill to the battlefield. When his men finally gained control of Cyrus's body, his head and right hand were unceremoniously hacked off and held aloft by the king, which was a Persian custom symbolizing their victory. Artaxerxes then paraded Cyrus's head around. Afterwards, the king's army pursued Arias and his men as far as Cyrus's camp. There, they stopped their pursuit and instead sacked the camp, seizing a great deal of booty, including Cyrus's Greek concubines. But when Artaxerxes received word that the Greeks had defeated his men on his left, he ordered his army to form back up for battle and go after them. Meanwhile, by that point, Clearchus had regrouped his forces from their pursuit. But their chase had taken them about three miles, or five kilometers, away from the army of Artaxerxes. It was only after the battle that the Greek mercenaries heard about their baggage camp being raided. Clearchus spoke with Proxenos, who was nearest to him, and debated whether to send a detachment to help defend the camp, or to go in full force. But before a decision could be made, a new message arrived, warning of the approach of Artaxerxes' army from the rear. So they quickly did an about-face, and got into battle formation. However, Artaxerxes chose not to advance straight towards the Greeks. Instead, on the way, he recovered Tissaphernes and his troops. Once these two units formed together in battle order, they then set out. Before long, they were once again opposite the Greeks. As the two sides stared down each other, Clearchus grew concerned that an attack against his left wing would allow the enemy to outflank him on both sides, 
and thus massacre his army. So he decided to fold back his left wing until they had the river behind them. But before they could manage this maneuver, the king's line was up against them in the same formation he had adopted during the first engagement. With no other choice, the Greeks once again struck up the paean, and according to Xenophon, they broke the weak Persian lines with a charge well before they were even close to them, more so than before, and the Persians turned and ran. But if this were the case, it does not make much sense. The Persians were in a very strong position with the majority of their forces intact, and they could easily have outflanked the Greek position and slaughtered them. It seems more likely that when taking into account the time of day in the late afternoon, the sun probably was quickly fading, and neither army would have wanted to fight in the dark. Therefore, Artaxerxes probably hoped to put on a show of force, then reevaluated the situation, maybe with guidance from his experienced commanders, and ordered his men to orderly retreat to the hill above Canaxa and set up camp. Perhaps it was this orderly retreat that was disrupted by the Greek charge, as Xenophon claims. In any case, the disorder of the Persian lines caused by the retreat and by the Greek advance quickly turned their defeat into a rout. The Greeks then chased after them up to the village of Canaxa, but halted their advance there as the Persian cavalry had regrouped by now and came out to protect their infantry. As the Persians fled up the hill and down the other side, Clearchus stopped his pursuit and sent some scouts up the hill to check the situation from the top. Once word was received that the Persians had left the hill and set up a camp on the other side, the Greeks resisted as the sun was just beginning to set. Losses on either side are unknown, but according to Stesius and Plutarch, 9,000 casualties were reported to Artaxerxes. Cyrus's Asiatic forces are unaccounted for, but Xenophon only reports two losses among the Greek mercenaries. It is tempting to speculate on what would have happened had Cyrus stayed alive and won at Kunaxa. Some scholars believe that the dynamic Cyrus, if he had conquered his brother's empire, would have been able to turn Greece into a Persian satrapy governed by Lysander and the Spartans. But this speculation is affected heavily by Xenophon's praise that he heaps on Cyrus. The problem with Xenophon's characterization of Cyrus is that it justifies his own decision to leave Greece and follow him. He writes, quote, Of all the successors of Cyrus the Elder, no Persian was a more natural ruler, and none more deserved to rule than Cyrus the Younger. End quote. He substantiates this claim by stressing Cyrus's skill at handling horses, archery, and javelin traditional Persian pursuits, and his maintenance of order through harsh punishments. He also praises his generosity and fair-mindedness in distributing gifts. A different image of Cyrus, though, is found in a passage in Xenophon's Hellenica, which is perhaps derived from the Persica of Stesius. As we discussed in episode 107, Cyrus was said to have killed two of his cousins because they did not push their hands through the core, a kind of long sleeve, when they met him an honor normally reserved for the king alone. On the other hand, the Cyrus in Xenophon's Anabasis also assumes the prerogative of the Persian king, but he does not behave like a reckless murderer. Stesius had as good of a reason as anyone to damn Cyrus, as he worked in the court of Artaxerxes, just as Xenophon had to praise him. Perhaps then, the real Cyrus is somewhere in the middle. Before we return to the narrative of the 10,000, Let's briefly discuss the ramifications of Cyrus's death back at the Persian court. As we mentioned, the queen mother Perisatis and the queen Statira developed into bitter rivals as each vied to exert the most political influence on Artaxerxes. Supposedly, their intense hatred led Perisatis to encourage her son to take on concubines in order to hurt his wife. 
Stesius related how following the Battle of Kunaxa, Perisatis arrived in Babylon to mourn Cyrus. She recovered his head, hand, and body, buried them, and went away to Susa. When it was brought to her attention that a certain Carrion man was boasting that it was he, and no one else, who had killed Cyrus, she ordered the executioners to rack him on the wheel for ten days, then to gouge out his eyes, and finally to drop molten brass into his ears until he died. Unwisely, Mithridates later also boasted of killing Cyrus when he got a bit too drunk, and therefore a bit too talkative at court, and Perisatis took vengeance on the alleged slayer of her favorite son by having him executed by a process called scathism. The word comes from the Greek scathe, meaning anything scooped or hollowed out. This type of execution involved the trapping of the victim between two boats, feeding and covering him with milk and honey, and allowing him to fester and be devoured by insects and other vermin over time. Plutarch reports that, in this way, Mithridates was slowly consumed for 17 days until he at last died. This practice, though, is considered to be a purely literary invention by Plutarch, who attributes the story to Stesius, as it has never been attested in any other source. Whatever the case, Perisatis also took vengeance on the king's eunuch, called Bagapatis by Stesius, and Masabatis in Plutarch, who had cut off Cyrus's hand and head. At one point, she challenged her son to a game of dice for a thousand derricks, allowed him to win the game, and paid him the money. Then, pretending to be chagrined at her loss, and wishing to even the score, she challenged him to a second game with a eunuch for the stake. The king consented, and they agreed that both would reserve their five most trusted eunuchs, but that the rest would be fair game to be selected for the winner. Well, she won the game, selected Masabatis, as he had not been one of those accepted, and immediately gave him over to the executioners, who she ordered to flay him alive, to then set up his body slantwise on three stakes, and to nail up his skin to a fourth. This finally led Statira to speak out publicly against the cruelties of the Queen Mother, who she said was savagely and lawlessly putting to death those who were most faithful to the king. Finally, Perisatis had had enough of Satira, and she concocted a plan to have her daughter-in-law poisoned. Despite their animosity, the two women still ate together, though their mutual fear and caution led them to eat from the same dishes served by the same hands, to ensure that neither would try to poison the other for fear of poisoning herself. In order to get around this, Perisatis enlisted the help of a loyal eunuch servant, who Plutarch named as Gygus, but Stesius calls Genge. On one side of a knife blade, Perisatis smeared the poison. Then she carved a small bird with the knife in such a way that only one half of the animal was mixed with the poison. Thus, when they next dined together, Perisatis took and ate the half that was free from poison and served the other half to Statira. The poisoned meal brought about convulsions, and ultimately a painful death for the queen. Artaxerxes naturally was outraged by this, and he immediately executed the eunuch. According to Plutarch, the traditional mode of death for poisoners in Persia was to have their faces crushed over and over again with a broad stone until they died. Although it could not be proven that his mother had anything to do with the death of his wife, the queen, Artaxerxes maintained his suspicions, and it would strain their relationship. After the battle, the Greeks returned to the plundered camp. They still had not heard about Cyrus, and nobody else turned up from his personal unit either. Clearchus must have suspected that he had continued a pursuit of Artaxerxes, or perhaps had taken up a strategic point nearer to Babylon. There was some discussion with his officers about whether they should stay put or return to the camp, 
They decided on the latter course for the evening. But by the next morning, they finally heard from two riders sent by Arias. One of them was Procles, the ruler of Tuthrania, and a descendant of Demaratus, the exiled king of Sparta, who then served as Xerxes' advisor during the second Persian invasion of Greece. The messengers told them that Cyrus himself had been killed and that Arias had retreated with the surviving forces to some specified location and was leaving for Ionia the following day. This news deeply disheartened the generals. It made their victory seem irrelevant, and their expedition seem a failure. They now found themselves far away from home, about 1,100 miles, in the middle of a very large empire, with no food, no money, no guide, and no reliable friends. First, they sent Chirosophus of Sparta and Mino of Thessaly back with the messengers to corroborate the situation. Later that morning, a second set of messengers arrived, these from Tissaphernes and the Persian king, who demanded their complete surrender. But the Greek mercenaries refused to lay down their weapons and accept defeat, so they dismissed the messengers. And then Clearchus led them to meet up with Chirosophos, Mino, Arias, and the rest of Cyrus's former army. With Cyrus now dead, the Greek mercenaries offered to continue fighting with the intent of making Clearchus king, but he refused on the grounds that he was not of royal blood, and so even if he wanted to, he would not find enough support among the Persians to succeed. In addition, the Greek senior officers and Arias swore an oath that neither side would betray the other and would remain allies, and that he would guide them out of Persian territory without treachery. They could either slip away unseen or outdistance the enemy. So they set out at daybreak with the sun on their right and reached some Babylonian villages as the sun was setting. Their approach presented Tissaphernes and Artaxerxes with a problem. A large army of heavy troops, which they could not defeat by a frontal assault, were now roaming freely in Persian territory. So the following day, the king sent a second group of messengers, this time to negotiate a truce, not a surrender. The Greeks agreed to this and sought permission to leave Persian territory, fully armed and without fear of assault. Tissaphernes did not wish to honor their full request but allowed them to begin their exodus with Persian supervision, while a truce was being negotiated. The Greek army spent the next 20 or so days at a nearby village, where their guides indicated that they could get provisions while they awaited for Tissaphernes to arrive with news that the truce was accepted by the king. When he finally arrived, at the head of an army, as if he intended to return home himself, the two sides agreed upon terms and exchanged oaths. But Tissaphernes never had any intention of sticking by his word, and instead resorted to trickery. Under the guise of acting as their guide, he then began to lead them northwards for home. Once they reached the Tigris, the Greeks set up camp near the city of Sitake. The Persians, though, crossed the river and were out of sight. That evening, a messenger pretending to be Arias told Proxenos and Clearchus that if they didn't post guards on the bridge across the Tigris, Tissaphernes would destroy it during the night and leave them trapped until they starved. At hearing this, the generals were deeply disturbed about Tissaphernes' supposed betrayal and immediately posted guards on the bridge, as was recommended. Not one enemy soldier approached the bridge that night, though, and so at daybreak they crossed it, but with extreme caution. When the enemy approached and did not attack them, the Greeks must have felt that they had been duped by the messenger the night before, and the two sides continued on their journey together once again. But once they were in the interior beyond the Tigris River, the Persians managed to manipulate the fears of Clearchus 
by convincing him that his own army contained troublemakers that were trying to coordinate with the Persians to remove him as commander. Clearchus was already apt to paranoia, and so it did not take much to convince him that a plot was afoot. Therefore, he agreed to another meeting with the Persian high command to ensure that he could still rely upon them. During this meeting, any fears that Clearchus might have had were assuaged, as Tissaphernes dazzled him with his charm, and so he foolishly accepted a follow-on invitation to a feast. He took along with him his most senior officers, including four generals, Proxenos, Mino, Agius, and Socrates, and they were accompanied by 20 company commanders and about 200 ordinary soldiers. While the senior officers were all inside Tissaphernes' tent, the company commanders and their men kept a watch outside. A short while later, though, at some unspecified signal, the Greek officers inside were seized and taken prisoner, while cavalry came down and murdered the rest outside. Some of the generals were immediately led before the king, while others rotted in prison. But within two years, all had been executed. One of the regular Greek hoplites managed to escape and reach the Greek camp, where he stood, holding his intestines in his hands from a wound to the gut. After he told his fellow Greeks news of the Persian treachery and the imprisonment and impending deaths of their senior officers, they also found out that Tissaphernes had managed to flip Arius and his light troops to his side, likely by persuading the king to give him full immunity for his previous support of Cyrus. Basically, the Greeks were in one desperate predicament. They were close to the king's headquarters, surrounded on all sides by countless hostile tribes and cities, and left all alone with no allies or anyone willing to sell them provisions. Not only that, but they were a very long way from Greece, with no guides to help them get back, and with seemingly uncrossable rivers blocking their route home. According to Xenophon, he couldn't sleep that night and had a dream that awoke in him, so he called a meeting of Proxenos' company commanders, of which he was one, to discuss what they should do next. Then they called together all of the other surviving officers. After a long series of speeches, they voted on new generals to lead their fight out of the Persian Empire. They chose to elevate Chirosophus of Sparta to overall command in the front, and he was to be assisted by Xenophon of Athens and Timasian of Dardanus in the rear. The commanders in the middle were to be Philesius and Xanthicles of Achaea and Cleonor of Orchomenus. Once this was decided, then they held a meeting of the entire army. Afterwards, they destroyed their wagons and tents and began to make preparations to leave camp. Their immediate concern, and one that would haunt them throughout their entire journey home, was a lack of supplies. So they began to move out in search of some. They had gone only a short distance when Xenophon and his men in the rear had to deal with harassment from a minor force of 200 Persian cavalrymen and 400 slingers and archers, led by the aforementioned Mithridates. Their speed and mobility were far greater than anything that the slow-moving hoplites and lightly armed men could muster. All day long, finding no opposition from the Greeks, this cavalry moved cautiously closer and closer. Their archers, both mounted and on foot, fired their bows, while their flingers hurtled their stones. Some Greeks were wounded, and the rearguard in particular suffered badly. That night, after realizing the weakness of his forces, Xenophon ordered some of his hoplites to put down their weapons and to form a body of archers and light cavalry to rectify it. Combined with a small force of peltasts, this gave the Greek force a mobile arm to chase off the Persians and to protect their ranks. 
At the same time, Mithridates added 800 additional cavalrymen to his ranks for a total of 1,000, and together with his 400 slingers and archers, he hoped to capture the Greeks and hand them over to Tissaphernes. The following morning, the Greeks woke up earlier than usual and set off. When the Persian cavalry arrived a bit later and was firing within several yards, the trumpet sounded and Xenophon suddenly unleashed his new cavalry at a charge, smashing into the stunned and confused enemy, killing many and routing the rest. And so Mithridates' defeated army was forced into a retreat and lost many men in the process. Xenophon also reports that 18 cavalrymen were captured. This small skirmish is notable because it shows how well the Greeks were able to adapt their troop types when the situation required it. In addition, afterwards, the Greeks who had chased the Persians down did something very unusual. According to Xenophon, they mutilated their corpses in order to scare the Persians into not trying another attack. However, although the Persian forces withdrew that day and allowed the Greeks to carry on safely, this ultimately did not work. As the Greeks continued their northern march, following the Tigris River, Mithridates' forces still remained a constant threat. As the Persian pressure kept mounting and morale began to wane, when the Greeks reached the wide and deep Great Zab River, which joins the Tigris just south of modern Mosul in northern Iraq, they seemed to be surrounded on all sides. However, Xenophon quickly devised a plan. He ordered all nearby goats, cattle, sheep, and donkeys to be slaughtered, and their bodies to be stuffed with hay and laid across the river to be walked on. They also sewed up and covered them with soil, so as not to be slippery. This created a bridge across the Great Zab, over which Xenophon led his men before the Persians could get to them. Not only this, but the fact that, on their retreat, Xenophon managed somehow to feed his force in the heart of a vast empire with a hostile population was astonishing as the enemy engaged in the systematic devastation of its countryside and villages to deprive them of food and shelter. In doing so, Xenophon was the first known general who established in the rear of a phalanx a reserve from which he could feed and protect weaker parts of his line. This was a superb first conception. As they continued north into the vicinity of modern Mosul and northern Iraq, the 10,000 eventually passed by some massive fortifications bigger than anything that they had in Greece. These were the ruins of the ancient Assyrian cities of Nimrod and Nineveh, which Xenophon calls Larissa and Mespilla, respectively. From there, they made their way into the mountainous land of the Carducoi, or Carducians, a wild tribe inhabiting the mountains of modern eastern Turkey and southern Armenia, a region known as Cardune. Some scholars equate the Cardushoi with the modern Kurds, though this is by no means the consensus. In any case, the mountains of the Cardusians were a cold and unforgiving terrain that held a reputation of fear and dread within the Persian psyche. Xenophon related a story about how one Persian king had sent an army of 120,000 men into these mountains to subdue the Cardusians, but not one man returned alive. Unfortunately, this route was necessitated because the Persians had blocked the river crossing that one would typically take to go west towards Asia Minor. So this alternate, far more dangerous route would lead them to the Black Sea, and from there they could hop on ships back to Greece. As the 10,000 made their way in, most of the Cardusians fled before them up into the mountains. Not wanting to encourage their animosity, the Greeks only took food from the empty villages that they passed. Still, 
Some Cardusian bands of warriors fired at their rearguard with stones and arrows for several days, killing some and wounding others, before they reached the defile where the main Cardusian resistance awaited. In geography, a defile is a narrow pass or gorge between mountains or hills. This was the only path through these mountains, so by setting up here, the Cardusians hoped to force the Greeks into engaging in a frontal attack. However, the Greeks chose another option. After sending scouts to survey the area, they found a certain peak just north of their position that was occupied by a few Cardusian guards. But if they were to take it, they could come down and attack the Cardusians from both sides on the defile, and a group of 2,000 volunteered for this special mission. In what is known as the Battle of the Cardusian Defile, in the pouring rain one evening, 8,000 of the 10,000 lined up as if they were intending to make an attack on the Cardusian position in order to keep their attention focused on them, while the other 2,000 sneakily ascended and took control of the peak. Those guards they did not kill were chased off. At daybreak, the blare of their trumpets gave notice of their success to Xenophon and signified that they were coming down the peak to attack the Cardusian resistance from the rear. Not to mention that the noise caused confusion for the enemy. The main Greek army at once joined in the attack from the front. Being attacked on both sides, for a while the Cardusians fired arrows and other missiles, but eventually fled from their stronghold and occupied a series of hills. Therefore, one by one, the Greeks had to clear each hill in order to pass through the defile. As they progressed, the enemy continued to harass them. Whenever it was the vanguard whose progress was impeded, Xenophon would take some of his men up the peak and set about opening up the road again by getting higher than the enemy fighters who were causing the problem. Whenever the rear guard was under attack, Kerosophos took his men and did the same to clear the road for his rear. In this way, they constantly helped and looked out for each other as they fought for every hill, path, and water source that they needed to cross in order to pass through the Cardusian defile. After seven days of heavy mountain fighting, in which Xenophon showed the calm and patience needed for the situation, the Greeks made their way to the northern foothills of the mountains at the Kentritis River, the modern Botan River in southeastern Turkey. At the time, this region, between Lake Van and the modern Iranian border, was part of the Persian satrapy of Armenia. The current satrap, a man named Tirabazis, held special favor with the king so obviously, he would have been hostile to the fleeing Greeks. Therefore, he had dispatched a major Persian force to block their route northwards. And so, with Persians blocking their path forward and the Cardusians surging towards their rear, Xenophon and his army again faced the threat of total annihilation. Luckily, Xenophon's scouts quickly found another ford across the river. But before he could get his army there to cross it, the Persians moved and blocked this one as well. In response, Xenophon sent a small force back towards the other ford, which caused the anxious Persians to detach a major part of theirs. Then, Xenophon stormed and completely overwhelmed the force remaining at his ford, while the Greek detachment made it to the other ford before the Persians could. This allowed the Greeks to cross the Kentrites River. After they linked up, they marched unimpeded through western Armenia for the next five days. Finally, Tirabasis rode up with a cavalry squadron and requested a conference with the Greek commanders. They agreed, but having learned their lesson from the last time that they met, to discuss peace terms with the Persians, they opted to shout their demands from some distance away. The two sides ultimately negotiated a truce, 
which stated that Tarabasis would not initiate an attack on the Greeks and would allow them to purchase provisions from his villages so long as they didn't burn or loot any of his people's property. The Greek generals agreed to these terms and then proceeded north for the next three days. However, a heavy snow slowed their march, and the truce with Tarabasis was quickly realized to be a stalling tactic by the Persian ruler so that he could amass an army of mercenaries with which to ambush the Greeks in an upcoming narrow mountain pass. Fortunately, the plan was exposed by an escaped Persian prisoner, but any hope that the Greeks had of a simple march through western Armenia was very quickly quelled by the snow and this betrayal. However, this was only a betrayal in the eyes of the Greeks, as it was considered a justified act to the Persians, since the Greeks supposedly had broken the truce by burning down some houses, most likely as a way of trying to stay warm in the snowstorm. As Xenophon notes, it was clear that winter had now arrived, and that the Greeks were absolutely unprovided with clothing suitable for such weather. With no relief from the cold and snow, and being constantly on the march as they tried to distance themselves from Tarabasis' army, the Greeks pushed on for several weeks. But they lost 30 men to the weather, and many more were showing signs of hunger, fatigue, snow blindness, extreme frostbite, and even depression. Now that the truce was broken, along the way, the Greeks were forced to descend upon any village that they passed in order to rest from the cold and to fill up their bellies with food and wine. Somehow, the 10,000 managed to reach the city of Phasis on the Phasis River, the modern Rioni River in western Georgia, which originates in the Caucasus Mountains and flows west to the Black Sea. Phasis was a Greek emporion, likely founded by Miletus, with a population of both Greeks and non-Greeks. It seems to have been a vital component of the presumed trade route from India to the Black Sea, attested by the Roman-era authors Strabo and Pliny. Coming from the south, Phasis formed the border into the lands of the Caliboi, a generic name for the peoples of the southern Black Sea coast who traded in iron and specialized in metalwork. In fact, their name in Greek means iron or steel. Although their origins are disputed, ancient authors believed that they were a Scythian tribe. In addition, there also was the Taikoi, a mountainous tribe in the Caucasus Mountains. Well after the Greeks arrived at the Phasis River, it was not long before resistance was met once more in the form of an alliance between these three peoples, the Phasians, the Caliboi, and the Taikoi. But using the same tactics as before with the Cardukoi, the 10,000 were able to defeat this force and push into the mountainous lands of the Taikoi, at which point they quickly ran low on supplies, since the Taikoi removed all of their provisions and placed them into their heavily fortified strongholds. The desperate and hungry Greeks, though, managed to come across one of these strongholds that was poorly garrisoned, and so they decided to attack it. This castle was stationed on a hill that was surrounded by a forest on one end and the main road on the other. At first, Xenophon ordered small parties of his men to appear on the road, and when the castle's defenders fired boulders, a soldier would leap into the trees, come back out, and hide again. He did this until there was a large heap of boulders lying in front of the road. Then the other men followed his example. When the castle's defenders ran out of boulders, the soldiers attacked the exposed part of the road and stormed the fortress, which, with most of the garrison now neutralized, barely put up a fight. The fighting was fierce, and the taking of the stronghold came at a larger and unexpected cost to the Greeks. But even more so was the mass suicide of the Teoikoi after their defeat. As Xenophon describes with horror the scene of Teoikian women throwing their children off the cliff that housed the stronghold and jumping after them to their deaths, presumably to avoid enslavement. 
After resupplying, the Greeks then headed west and back into Calibian territory, again fighting for every step of the way, and Xenophon says the Caliboi were the most valiant of all their enemies. Like the Taikoi, they too removed all of their provisions behind their walled cities and harassed the Greeks from the rear. However, the Greeks were able to survive on the provisions that they had taken from the Taikoi. After seven days, the Greeks finally left Calibian territory after crossing the Harpasus River. It is thought that what Xenophon calls the Harpasus was actually the Teleboas, which is the modern Karasu River in eastern Turkey, and is one of the two sources for the Euphrates River. To the west of this river were the lands of the Scythenoi, a significant Scythian tribe in the southeastern corner of the Black Sea. With them, the Greeks' fortunes began to change, as they were able to replenish their supplies at the large and prosperous Scythian city of Gymnius, and were even sent a guide by a local ruler. Admittedly, this guide had the sole intention of directing the Greeks through the territory of his ruler's enemies, with the hope that the Greek army would ravage their lands. But still, the Greeks were very happy finally to have gained a guide on their journey back home. By the fifth day of their guided tour, the Greeks reached Mount Tekis, the modern Madur in northeastern Turkey. Here is where they would see the waters of the Black Sea for the very first time. Xenophon records this joyful moment in early 400 BC when the 10,000, by then actually far fewer, from the heights of Mount Tekis saw the sea and friendly Greek colonies on the coast, which signified their escape had been made, whereupon they shouted, Thaleta, Thaleta, or the sea, the sea. The sight stopped the army in its tracks as they fell into each other's arms, cheering and crying with joy. This was the first moment where the men allowed themselves to believe that they could make it home that the worst could be over, and that the families which they had been thinking of for so long were within their grasp once again. But all was not well just yet. Leaving the land of the Scythenoi behind them, the Greeks marched for three days through the rather hospitable lands of the Macrones, with whom they managed to negotiate safe passage. Then they came into the more hostile domain of the Colchians, whose territory stretched along the southeastern, eastern, and northeastern Black Sea coastline. In Greek myth, Colchis is known as the destination of the Argonauts, as well as the home to Medea and the Golden Fleece. Fortunately for the 10,000, the tribes of southern Colchis did not have the metal to face the strong hoplite force, and never gave any threatening resistance. That's because the Greek generals had ordered their men to deploy their line extremely thin so as to overlap the enemy while keeping a strong reserve. The Colchians, seeing that they were being outflanked, divided their army to check the Greek deployment. But this opened a gap in their line through which the Greeks rushed in their reserves, scoring a brilliant victory and scattering the enemy. Afterwards, unimpeded, the Greeks continued and finally reached the Black Sea, where they encamped in some Colchian villages not far from the Greek city of Trapezus, modern Trabzon. From here, Karasophus's men launched raids on the Colchians, with supplies coming in from the Trapezians. They also sacrificed to Zeus Soter and Heracles. In all, the Greeks were happy, well-fed, and after holding an athletic competition, were well-entertained too. After the rituals and frivolities came to an end, the time came to decide on their next course of action. During a meeting of their officers, the most popular idea bandied about was to acquire some ships and sail through the Hellespont to Greece, rather than continuing marching overland. Therefore, Kerasophus volunteered to meet up with his friend Anaxibius 
the Spartan naval commander in the region at Byzantion, in order to obtain a sufficient number of ships to transport them back home. Meanwhile, those who were left behind, under the ostensible command of Xenophon, were to try and acquire more ships, any necessary supplies, and some much-desired booty. For the latter, two men, named Exippus of Laconia and Polycrates of Athens, were each given a warship by the Trapezians and tasked with commandeering some merchant ships. But whereas Polycrates brought back all of the cargo that he stole, Dexippus took his ship and sailed off. Xenophon, though, says he got what he deserved in the end, as he was later killed by Nicandros of Sparta at the court of Suthes in Thrace. And so, with Chirosophus gone, organized raiding parties were sent out to forage and plunder the Colchian countryside for whatever they could find, but very few returned with any success. On one occasion, two companies went out under the command of a man named Cleonetus with orders to attack a well-defended position, but the party suffered a great many casualties, which included the death of Cleonetus himself. Ultimately, these excursions were dangerous and fruitless, and before long, it became impossible to go out, forage, plunder, and return back to camp all on the same day. Therefore, Xenophon decided to change tactics and sent half of his army to penetrate different lands in search of supplies while the remaining half held the camp against a possible Colchian reprisal. With guides from Trapezus directing them, Xenophon and his army marched south into the territory of the Drilli, a mountain tribe who were a constant burden to the Trapezians. That's because the Trapezian guides refused to take the Greeks to places where provisions were easily available, since they were on friendly terms with the people there. So once again, the Greeks had been manipulated into fighting the enemy of their allies. The land of the Drilli was rugged and mountainous, and the Drilli themselves were considered the most warlike of all the peoples on the Black Sea. When the Greeks advanced into their lands, the Drilli set fire to their own villages in the countryside and retreated to their strongholds in the mountains. As the Greeks were forced deeper and deeper into their territory in search of food, they found little for their troubles other than the occasional ox or pig, nothing of great substance. Most of the Drilli had retreated into a single central stronghold, referred to by Xenophon as their mother city, and it was here that the Greeks would make the push for their supplies. This stronghold was situated beyond a very deep gully that appeared to surround it and was built on top of a mound, which was formed from the soil excavated from a large moat that circumnavigated it. Atop this mound was a wooden palisade with defensive towers interspersed at short intervals. Inside of the walls was a small town filled with wooden houses and a strongly defended acropolis. The Greek Peltasts had raced over 800 meters ahead of the main hoplite force. They were the first to see the stronghold, and after spotting the vast array of livestock inside its palisades, they raced even further ahead, crossing the gully and launching an attack. In this endeavor, they were also joined by a large group of Dorophoroi, which translates as spear carriers. But these were most likely lightly armed hoplites, shedding their traditional armor and shields for mobility and climbing the rugged terrain and palisades, or camp followers who had armed themselves in search of loot. By combining forces with the Peltasts, this first assault numbered 2,000 lightly armed men. Their attack was grossly unsuccessful though, as they had underestimated the Drilli and would pay the price. As they began to retreat, they realized that they could not do so without descending into a single file which would not only slow them down, but also leave them horribly exposed to the Drilli, who would sally from the palisades and attack them. 
and so, unable to move, they quickly sent a messenger to Xenophon asking for help. Immediately, Xenophon crossed the gully with his company commanders, leaving the hoplites on the other side while he determined what to do. The question was whether it was best to cut their losses and to try and evacuate the isolated assailants as safely as possible, or whether the stronghold could be taken with their hoplites. The commanders ultimately decided that it was possible to take the stronghold. This was a foolhardy decision for such a well-defended position. But Xenophon trusted his diviners, who had also foreseen in their omens a victory that day, and so he concurred with the other commanders. As a result, Xenophon recalled the Peltas from the stronghold, while his company commanders brought the hoplites across the gully. Once his force had amassed together, Xenophon ordered his commanders to reorganize their own companies in a manner that they thought best in order to make the most efficient fighting force. In a masterstroke of manipulation, Xenophon succeeded in exploiting the natural competitiveness that had become apparent between his commanders. Each one wanted to be seen as the bravest, and so each organized their men in the best way they could to achieve the bravest of all acts, that being the first to take the palisade. Then, Xenophon readied his missile troops, giving strict orders for the Peltas to have their javelins looped in its handle to create a greater throwing distance, for the archers to have their arrows notched, and for the slingers to have their bags full of lead shots. But none could fire without his signal. Once everyone was readied, they stood in a large crescent, due to the terrain, so that they could all see each other. Then the trumpets blew, and the Greeks began to chant the paean. With a harrowing war cry to Anialius, a minor war god or epithet of Ares, they charged up the mound to begin the attack. As they began to run, Xenophon gave a signal, and the missiles began to fly. Arrows, spears, stones, and lead shots. Even fire had been brought in as an attempt to take the palisade as quickly as possible. This all worked, and the sheer weight of the missiles was enough to clear the walls and towers of its defenders. Seeing the palisade now clear, two men laid down their armor and shields, helped each other climb the wall, and took control of its defenses. The Peltast and light-armed troops, presuming that the palisade had been taken, and that the Drilli would be panicking and trying to escape through other exits, ran blindly through the main gates to begin their anticipated plundering. Xenophon, though, was able to keep most of the hoplites outside of the gates, noticing as he did that the enemy had begun to appear on ridges outside of the walls, which they could easily defend. His greatest concern was that the Drilli might attempt to navigate the rough terrain and attack any Greeks that they found isolated and exposed. But Greek screams and cries for help soon diverted his attention as they were coming from inside the stronghold. Men began to run out of the gate, clutching at any loot they had managed to grab, and before too long, their number included many who were wounded. In the panic and the overpowering noise that occurs with so many voices at once, Xenophon's questions went unanswered, until finally, someone informed him that the Drilli were not evacuating the town, but had regrouped in their strongly defended Acropolis. From this position of security, they were sending out sorties, which in turn were having great success in their attacks on the Greeks inside the town. Xenophon had to think quickly, and so he ordered his herald, Tolmides, to tell any of the men outside the walls that if they wanted any loot, they should enter the stronghold before it was all gone. This quickly reversed the tide of human traffic leaving the gates, and added the necessary impetus to force the Drillite back onto their Acropolis. In addition, many of the hoplites were placed on the palisades and towers and on the road which went from the main gate up to the Acropolis, 
while the lighter armed men began to grab anything that they could get their hands on. The Greeks were in a difficult position now. Having taken the walls and forced the Drilli back atop their Acropolis, they were safe from any kind of sortie. But the moment that the enemy decided to try and leave their current stronghold, they would be very vulnerable to an attack from behind. And so, Xenophon wanted to take control of the Acropolis, stripping the Drilli of their last defensive position. Because in siege warfare, one could not claim to have control of a city without taking its central citadel. But he could not think of an effective way to do so with the forces that he had at his disposal. And so, he determined that it was more important for him to conceive of a way to minimize the losses of his men as they made an orderly retreat. And so he took several steps to ensure this outcome. First, he ordered each company of hoplites to tear down a section of the palisade. Then, his commanders were to dismiss anyone who was injured or heavy laden with booty. Xenophon also had them send away most of the hoplites, except for those who the commanders felt that they could rely on the most. These men would act as a rearguard to cover the withdrawal. This was not going to be an easy retreat, and Xenophon knew that he needed his very best men to maintain discipline if it was going to work. As dusk began to fall, the encroachment of darkness caused an even greater concern for the remaining Greeks. The retreat began, and as anticipated, the Drilli spewed forth from the Acropolis in a rage befitting besieged men. Armed with wicker shields, spears, and helmets, the men of the Drilli engaged in hand-to-hand combat, while others mounted the roofs of their houses to shout at the Greeks from a safe vantage point. Stationed on both sides of the main road to the Acropolis, the Drilli had the Greeks in serious trouble. To retreat was now just as dangerous as to stay where they were. The only saving grace for Xenophon was that his remaining force was made up of his most reliable and disciplined men. They held out for as long as they could, long enough for the situation to change, and change it did. Either by design or by accident, a house on the right-hand side of the road was set ablaze, causing havoc amongst the nearby Drilli defenders. The dried timber used for most of the buildings quickly caught fire, and flames spread indiscriminately. Xenophon acted quickly, ordering the houses on the left-hand side to be set ablaze as well. This forced the defenders to abandon these positions, which gave the Greeks a pause from the constant onslaught. With just the force in front of them left to deal with, Xenophon ordered those out of range of the missiles, which were still raining down on them, to build up a fire to block themselves from the Drilli advance. Once this was ablaze, they set fire to all of the houses next to the palisades, in a last-ditch attempt to redirect the Drilli's attention from the Greeks and onto the survival of their own town. It worked, and finally, Xenophon was able to evacuate the remainder of his men from the fortress. As they fled, the stronghold was completely consumed by the flames and burned to the ground, palisades, towers, and all. The only remaining vestibule of this formidable stronghold was the unassailable and evidently indestructible Acropolis. When the Greek army returned to their camp near Trapezus on the next day, they quickly realized that Kerasophus was not going to arrive anytime soon. They also knew that without his promised Spartan ships, they had not yet acquired enough on their own to send the army home. Confined to their fate, they put the men who were injured and over the age of 40, along with any women and children who had come along as camp followers, onto the few ships they had commandeered. These were led by Philesius and Sophonetus, the two oldest generals. At the same time, the rest, meaning all the healthy and under 40 men, marched west to Carasus, 
a Greek city on the coast that was a colony of Sinope in Colchian territory. There, the two forces linked up and stayed for ten days. At Kerasus, the Greeks shared out the money that they had made from the sale of their prisoners, reserving a tenth for Apollo and Artemis. Xenophon later had Apollo's portion made into a dedication which he set up in the Athenian treasury at Delphi, and he inscribed on it his name and that of Proxenus, his guest friend. On the other hand, he used Artemis's portion to buy land for the goddess at Scyllus, as we mentioned earlier, where he built an altar and a temple, and afterwards set forth a tenth of the land's crops as a sacrifice to the goddess. Finally, for the first time since the Battle of Conoxa, the Greeks were able to hold an official count of how many men survived from the original 10,000. They had 8,600 men left. After Kerasus, those on the ships and those on foot continued their journey west and entered the land of the Masanikoi, with whom they entered into an alliance. In return for safe passage through their territory, the Greeks agreed to help a certain group of Masanikoi to expel a rival faction from their main stronghold, which they claimed was being held illegally. But when the Masanoikian Peltasts charged the stronghold, the enemy came out and ousted them, only falling back behind their defenses with the arrival of the Greek hoplites. And so they tried again on the next day, and again the enemy stood their ground against the Masanoikian Peltasts until the Greek hoplites arrived and chased them towards the city. As the Greeks pressed them, hand-to-hand fighting occurred until the rival faction was defeated and forced to flee. After the Greeks looted the stronghold, they handed it over to their Masanoikian allies. As a result, when the Greeks continued on their journey westward, all other places in Masanoikian territory were now friendly to them. Xenophon here goes into a bit of detail about the customs of the Masanoikoi. According to Xenophon, those who returned home used to say the Masanoikoi were the most barbarous people that they passed through and the furthest removed from Greek customs. In defense of this, he cites five pieces of evidence. First, that they cut off the heads of the corpses and then would dance around them while chanting a kind of song. Second, that they eat dried dolphin meat and consume dolphin blubber for the same purposes that the Greeks used olive oil. Third, that in one particular rich Masanoikian town, their boys were all fat, pale, and with complex and colorful tattoos of flower designs all over their backs and fronts. Fourth, that they preferred outdoor sex to being indoor. And finally, that they would converse and laugh with themselves, even when nobody else was around. The veracity of these customs, as with anything said about the barbarians, can be taken with a grain of salt. It took the Greeks eight days in total to get through Masanoikian territory. Then they came upon the Tiberenoi, whose land was flat and whose people weren't very hospitable. As a result, the Tiberenoi accepted tokens of friendship, and the Greeks were able to march for two days unopposed to their lands until they came to the Greek city of Katiora, modern Ordu in northeastern Turkey. It was either a colony of Sinope or Miletus. In that vicinity, the Greek mercenaries stayed for 45 days, during which time they sacrificed to the gods and each ethnic group performed their own religious processions and held athletic competitions. But they had to take their provisions from villages outside of Katiore, as its inhabitants wouldn't let them inside the city's walls. Eventually, a delegation arrived from nearby Sinope, out of concern for the land that they heard was being devastated. Xenophon defended his army's conduct and assured the delegates that they meant no ill will. As a result, the two sides enter into friendship with an invite to Sinope. The Sinopians advised them that it would be easier to travel by sea, which they offered to finance, likely to stop further devastation of their land. Therefore, 
They send ships, but no money for provisions. So along the way, the Greeks were forced to stop, disembark their ships, and raid the territory of the Paphlagonians. Eventually, they too signed a non-aggression pact with much religious pomp and circumstance in the form of libations, paeons, dancing, and so forth. When the mercenaries finally reached Sinope, a coastal Greek city in Paphlagonian territory, which was in North Central Asia Minor, they were provided provisions, and it was here where they reunited with Karasophis, who only returned with the single trireme that he left with. Apparently, he was not successful in his appeal to Anaxibius, the Spartan naval commander, as he brought back nothing but a promise of employment and pay as soon as they came out of the Black Sea. The Greeks now decided that they needed a single leader to get them back to Greece, because a plurality of commanding officers seemed to have been hindering their efforts, as all actions needed to be discussed and couldn't be acted upon until they came to a consensus. So with Karasophis' return to the army, he was chosen commander-in-chief, as Xenophon declined the position for himself on the grounds that he was not a Spartan, and that a Spartan should lead the army. And so, on the next day, they put to sea and sailed for two days along the coast to the Greek city of Heraclea Pontica, a colony of Megara. As tokens of their friendship, the Heracleots gave the Greeks about three days' worth of provisions. The people, though, realizing that this would not be enough for the rest of the journey through the Black Sea, decided to ask, or perhaps force, the Heracleots to give them money and nominate Kerasophus and Xenophon as delegates in this endeavor. But both disagreed with the plan, as they felt that they should not force a friendly Greek city to give something that they had not freely offered. Despite being commander-in-chief now, Kerasophus was unable to enforce his authority, and so on the sixth or seventh day after his election, the 4,500 Arcadian and Achaean hoplites, who formed more than half of the army, and who wished to be led by their own men, separated themselves from the rest, and departed by sea under the ten generals whom they had independently appointed. Their plan was to get some ships from the Heracleots, by any means necessary, to sail to Calpe, a Greek port city in Bithynian territory, and to make sudden assaults on the Bithynians along the way. In doing so, the next day at dawn, each of the ten generals took a company of 450 hoplites against one of the villages. Their assaults were unexpected. They took a lot of prisoners and rounded up a lot of sheep, but one company didn't fare too well. Smikres of Arcadia led his forces across a gully. They were ambushed, and every single one of them was killed, including Smikres himself. Then, in another company, led by Hecasandros, only seven of his 450 men, plus himself, escaped alive. The remaining companies rendezvoused more or less easily on a certain hill, but that night, the Bithynians had mustered their forces and came together around the Greek position. Their peltasts and cavalry overpowered the hoplites in this environment. Basically, the Greeks couldn't move from their position as the Bithynians could attack them from a distance and on all sides. Meanwhile, Xenophon had offered to continue the march with the remainder of the forces, under the command of Kerasophos. But Kerasophos was so angry about what had happened in regards to the Arcadians and Achaeans that he declined the proposal. Plus, Cleandros, the Harmost in Byzantion, had promised to come to Calpe with triremes, and he wished to reserve them exclusively for his own portion of the army. So with the small division still under his command, that being 1,400 hoplites and 700 peltasts, Kyrosophus marched them safely along the coast to Calpe, 
while Xenophon led his force of about 1,700 hoplites, 300 peltasts, and 40 horsemen west through the interior. At one point, Xenophon came across some men who told him about another Greek army that was being besieged on a hill by a Bithynian force at full strength. Xenophon quickly realized that these were some of his men who had gone off on their own and that he needed to help them, so the strangers guided his company to them. Along the way, he had his troops set fire to everything that they could so as to give the effect that his army was very large. When they arrived in the vicinity of the Bithynian force, they climbed atop an opposite hill and lit many more fires than was necessary. At daybreak, they got in battle formation and marched to the besieged hill. But Xenophon's cavalry, which was sent ahead to scout, reported that no hostile or friendly forces were there at all. Instead, they found that the Bithynians had fled the night before and that the Greeks followed at dawn to an unknown location. Therefore, Xenophon and his army followed the tracks of their Greek brethren and found them at Calpe Road, on the way to the Calpe Harbor, the halfway point of the voyage from Heraclea Pontica to Byzantion. They reunited with the rest of their force when they reached the harbor. However, they also received the news that Kerasophos had died from the effects of a medicine that he had taken for a fever. As a result, Neon of Essene had taken over his post. By now, the dissident generals had learned their lesson about not working together, and an assembly was held in which they resolved that in the future, anyone who mentioned dividing the army should be put to death, and that they would not linger here much longer. But for the next several days, they had unfavorable sacrifices, while supplies continued to dwindle. So Neon decided to lead all comers on a foraging expedition, and about 2,000 men went out to gather provisions. During this, they were attacked by the cavalry of Pharnabasis, the satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, who was trying to stop them from entering his territory, which bordered Bithynia to the southwest. Pharnabasis's cavalry is said to have killed about 500 of the foragers, while the other 1,500 took refuge in the hills. One managed to escape and bring the news back to Xenophon, and he and all men under 30 went to help their comrades. They rescued the survivors and returned safely back to camp. By then, the sun was going down, and they were preparing their evening meal, when suddenly some Bithynians emerged from the woods and attacked the Greek sentries. A few survivors ran back to the camp. Hearing the shouts, the Greeks grabbed their weapons and lined up to fight. But since it was not a good idea to be chasing an enemy in their territory at night, the Greeks opted to post a lot more sentries to keep watch, and to spend the night under arms in case of an attack. At dawn the following day, the Greek army marched out, leaving behind all the older men over the age of 45 to guard the camp. After burying their dead from the day before, they continued to the villages looking for supplies. They came across a large force of Persian cavalry and Bithynians, under Spithridates and Rathenes, who were sent there by Pharnabasis. In response, Xenophon ordered his men into battle formation. Three companies of 200 men each were posted in reserve behind the left, right, and center of his line, and peltas were positioned on the flanks. As the two sides clashed, the enemy line crumbled. Timazion and the Greek cavalry on the right set out in pursuit and killed as many as they could on the enemy left. The enemy right, though, rallied on the hill. So the Greeks attacked their position straight away, launching a second assault. This too crumbled, and then it was the peltas' turn to chase. Their advance was checked, though, by a large enemy cavalry force. The Greek forces returned to the battle site and set up a victory trophy, before withdrawing back to their camp. After this, 
both the Bithynians and Pharnabasus' cavalry steered clear of the Greeks. The Greeks continued to wait at Calpe for Cleandros, the harmost of Byzantium, passing the time by plundering and foraging to survive. Finally, Cleandros arrived, and it was just so happened to be while the army was away. But he brought only two triremes and no transports. Soon after his arrival, a sticky situation occurred, in which the traitor Dexippus was roughly handled in fear that he was trying to take their booty from him. He was the one who fled Trapezus with a warship. At Dexippus's instigation, Cleandrus threatened to sail away, to denounce Xenophon's army as enemies, and to issue orders that no Greek city should receive them. He then arrested those involved in the plot. But when Xenophon and the army returned, the Greek leader succeeded in pacifying Cleandros and getting the release of those that he arrested. Cleandros even offered guest friendship to Xenophon, and in return, Xenophon offered to let him lead the army home. However, Cleandros most likely wished to avoid the possibility of any hostile confrontation with the Persian satrap Pharnabasis, so he opted to sail back to Byzantion instead, but with the promise that he would give the army the best reception in his power on their arrival there. At the same time, the army set out through Bithynia, and five days later, they arrived at Chrysopolis in Halcedonia, on the Asiatic shore of the Bosporus, where they stayed for seven days. By this point, Pharnabasus had grown afraid that the Greek mercenary army, in search of provisions and booty, might attack his province, so he sent word to Anaxibius, the Spartan naval commander who happened to be at Byzantion, and asked him to ferry them out of Asia Minor. In return, he promised to do anything that Anaxibius might ask. Anaxibius thought it would be useful to have Pharnabasus indebted to him, so he sent word to the Greek generals at Chrysopolis that their men would be hired for pay if they crossed the Bosporus Strait and came to Byzantium. Unsurprisingly, they took him up on the offer, but when they arrived, Anaxibius refused to fulfill his agreement and also publicly ordered them to take their weapons and baggage and immediately leave the city. This made the men very angry, so Xenophon sought the assistance of his new guest friend, Cleandros, the Harmost of Byzantion. They both went to Anaxibius and pleaded their case, but to no avail. As a result, the Greek generals ordered all of their men to show up under arms outside the city's walls. But once outside, the generals were approached by a messenger from Suthes of Thrace. While they tried to figure out whether he was a friend or foe to them, meaning if they could count on him for provisions, a Spartan named Etionicus started to close the gate. If you recall from previous episodes, Etionicus was a mid-level Spartan officer during the latter stages of the Peloponnesian War. Here, he was serving under Anaxibius and seems to have been ordered to ensure that the Greeks were forced out of the city. Well, by closing the gate behind them, he only enraged the men even further, so the soldiers attacked the gate, busted it open, and poured inside. This caused the Byzantines to evacuate their agora and run for their homes, while both Etionicus and Anaxibius took refuge on the Acropolis. Although Etionicus was able to make it to the Acropolis directly, Anaxibius was forced to run down to the shoreline and to sail around to the Acropolis on a fishing boat. There, he sent for the garrison from Halkidon, as he doubted that the number of troops which he had on the Acropolis were enough to quell the situation. But this would end up not being necessary as the Greek army's rage was reined in by Xenophon. Soon afterwards, the soldiers pulled back outside the city's walls. Once they left the city, Anaxibius came down from the Acropolis, shut the gates, and proclaimed that any of Xenophon's soldiers from that point forward, who was found inside the city walls, would be sold into slavery. 
as a determent to keep any from sneaking back in. Even still, Xenophon arranged a meeting with Cleandrus and asked him to find a way for him to be allowed inside the city so that he could leave Byzantion by ship, as he did not wish to continue his journey overland through Thrace. This was granted, and in fact, Cleandros basically ignored Anaxibius' proclamation. So Xenophon said goodbye to his troops and left. With Kyrosophus' death and Xenophon's departure, leading the army now was Neon of Essene, Thalesius, Phreniscus, and Xanthicles, all three of Achaea, and Tamazion of Dardanus. They set out for some Thracian villages near Byzantion and set up camp there. But then, the generals disagreed as to their next course of action. Phreniscus wanted to take the army to work for the Thracian king Suthes, while Neon wanted to go to the Chersonese, and Tamasion wanted to cross back over to Asia. The majority of soldiers supported Tamasion's proposal, perhaps as a way to make more money. But as time went on, many began to sell their arms and armor, and found some way to set sail for their various homes, or began to get involved in the life of the nearby communities and opted to settle down there. Anaxibius was delighted to hear that the army was falling apart, because he thought nothing would please Pharnabasis more. Shortly thereafter, a man named Aristarchus had arrived from Sparta to replace Cleandros as Harmos of Byzantion. It is uncertain how long the office of a Harmos lasted, but it seems likely to have been a year. Therefore, his replacement probably had more to do with his term ending than because he had angered Spartan authorities back home. In any case, the first thing that Aristarchus did was act on Anaxibius' earlier proclamation that any of Cyrus's soldiers found in Byzantion should be sold as slaves, which amounted to about 400 men. However, now that he was no longer in command, as the office of Navarch was definitely a one-year term, Anaxibius quickly found himself out of favor with Pharnabasis, so he attempted to revenge himself by persuading Xenophon to sail back to the army, whip it back into shape, and quickly lead them to Paranthos on the Propontis, where they could cross over to Asia and invade Pharnabasis' satrapy. And so, when Xenophon arrived back in the vicinity of Byzantion, he found that about 5,000 of his men were still in the area, likely because they had grown accustomed to the life of a mercenary soldier and respected Xenophon very much. The men eagerly accepted his leadership in the mission. But the enterprise was stopped outside the walls of Paranthus, when Xenophon received word that if he went into the city to negotiate for ships, as was his plan, he would be arrested and handed over to Pharnabasis. With Asia now out of the question, Xenophon pondered over the army's other two options, to take up Suthes' offer or to go to the Chersonese. Ultimately, he decided on Suthes and sent a delegation of his most trustworthy men to go along with him to meet the Thracian king. When the two sides met, Suthes said that he always regarded the Athenians as loyal friends, Xenophon being one. Ultimately, the two shook hands on an agreement for his use of the Greek army to make himself ruler of the Thracian coast. In return, the Greek soldiers would be paid one stature per person a month. If you remember from episode 106, the Odrysian Thracians were currently ruled by Amadocus, but due to frequent attacks from the Triboloi, another Thracian tribe to the northwest, near modern-day southern Serbia and western Bulgaria, he lost some of his territories. So to ensure that there would be no such losses in the south, he had appointed Suthes II as ruler of his lands along the Aegean shoreline, and Terrus II over those in the western Black Sea coast. It's unsure, but it appears that these men were distant relatives of the royal family, 
Suthis, though, desired to be the supreme king of the Odrysian state, and not just some subordinate regional ruler. Regardless, at the moment, he needed to use the Greek army against local opposition to solidify his power base in southeastern Thrace before he could act on any of his grand aspirations to break off and form his own kingdom. Then, Xenophon and his delegation went back to the army, and a few days later, the entire Greek army was assembled outside of Suthis' tower. That night, he invited the Greek generals and company commanders to a lavish banquet, in which Xenophon sat next to the Thracian king as a guest of honor. Here, Xenophon describes in great detail the ostentatiousness of this meal and the richness of Suthis. Ultimately, it was decided that they would attack as soon as possible before Suthis' enemies could learn of their alliance, so they made plans for the following evening. The Greek hoplites led the way, with the peltasts and horsemen following behind as they began to raid and burn down some nearby villages, leaving not a single house standing as a warning to everyone else of what would happen if they did not submit. They then camped on the plain where a Thracian tribe, known as the Thrinoi, usually lived, but had abandoned it due to their arrival. Xenophon notes how, at this point, the snow was so deep and was so cold that he now realized why the Thracians wear foxskin hats, which protect their ears, and why their clothes cover their thighs, meaning they wear pants. Something that the Greek soldiers did not do, as their chitons were generally mid-thigh length for greater maneuverability. A few days later, Xenophon tried to warn Suthis about the poor location of their camp and its proximity to the enemy, the Thinoi. Suthis tells him not to worry, but the following night, Xenophon's worries were realized, as the Thinoi made a raid on their camp. And so, after they were subdued, Xenophon insisted, with or without Suthis, that they move their location into the mountains. Suthis finally agreed, and this time, he brought his whole army with him, as he now had three times as many men as before, because a lot of Odrysians, hearing of his successes, had come down from the interior to join his ranks. When the Thinoi saw this massive horde, they came down and entered into discussions for a truce. Suthis told Xenophon that he would not make a truce if he wished to get revenge for the attack. But Xenophon said, quote, The fact that they are now going to exchange freedom for slavery is recompense enough. End quote. He then advised Suthis to take as hostages those Thinian men with the most potential for trouble, and peace terms were made. Afterwards, the joint Greek-Thracian army crossed the mountains and entered the delta in the Thracian countryside to the northwest of Byzantion, which was ruled by the aforementioned Teres. It was at this point that a dispute arose over pay. Suthis had paid the troops for only 20 days of the month that had passed, so roughly two-thirds of what was owed to them, claiming that this was all that he could give them since he made a lot less than expected from the sale of booty. This was thanks to a certain man named Heraclides of Maronea, a Greek man who had attached himself to the service of Suthis and was residing with him well before the arrival of Xenophon and his troops. Heraclides had been entrusted with the sell of the booty that had been acquired by the Greeks and Thracians, but had kept back a considerable part of it for himself. And in order to conceal his fraudulent conduct, he began to cast accusations at Xenophon. As a result, some of the troops grew very angry at Xenophon as well. And so Heraclides latched onto this even further to do all that he could to make Suthis think badly of the Athenian general. After arranging a meeting between the other generals and Suthis, Heraclides claimed that they could lead the army just as well without Xenophon. But this plan backfired, and Suthis and the other officers came to the defense of Xenophon and denounced Heraclides instead. 
With this situation settled, Xenophon still needed to get booty for his troops. So he marched his army northwest along the Black Sea coast and came to the Greek city of Salmadesis, about 100 kilometers or 60 miles northwest of the Propontis. This part of the coast was extremely dangerous and was the cause of many shipwrecks. Strabo describes it as desert, rocky, destitute of harbors, and completely exposed to the north winds, while Xenophon characterizes the sea adjoining it as full of shoals. Xenophon also informs us that in his time, the people of Salmadesis carried on the business of shipwreck salvagers in a very systematic manner, as the coast was marked out into portions with posts erected all along it, and each portion was assigned to a particular person who had the exclusive right to plunder all vessels and persons that should be shipwrecked in it. This plan was adopted to prevent the bloodshed which had frequently occurred during their previous practice of indiscriminate plunder. On the other hand, Xenophon says that the Thracians in the interior made it their practice to lie in wait in those parts and seize the merchants who were cast ashore as prisoners. And so, Xenophon's army invaded their territory, defeated them in battle, and burned most of their villages. They then marched back south to Suthi's camp. By this time, two months had passed since the Greek mercenaries began fighting in Thrace. Suthis' own army now was larger than the Greek force because more and more of the Odrysians had joined him from the interior, and because every time he conquered a tribe, these new subjects supplied him with men for his army. There was still no sign of any pay, and Xenophon's men grew angrier and angry at him. Just then, they received messengers saying that the Spartans had declared war on Tissaphernes and Pharnabasis, and that Thibron had set sail to take charge of the war effort. The Spartans were at war, probably on account of the aforementioned treacherous slaughter of their general Clearchus. We will discuss this in more detail in future episodes, but Thibron wanted to use their mercenary army and promised to pay each man a derrick a month, with the company commanders getting double and the generals four times as much. This was a win-win for both Xenophon's army and Suthis. He agreed to let them go because he could get in good graces with the Spartans, and because the soldiers would stop demanding their pay and leave his country without any issues. But Suthi still wished for Xenophon and a force of 1,000 to stay behind with the promise that he would give him a coastal stronghold at Bysanthi. However, Xenophon declined and opted to join the Spartan cause. Meanwhile, his troops began to raid nearby friendly villages for provisions. When Xenophon was summoned to Suthi's to explain, he said that while he did not condone the action, it only occurred because Suthis did not fulfill his end of the bargain and pay them. Ultimately, Suthis finally gave the Greek soldiers their back pay, and Xenophon led his army away. They next sailed across the Hellespont to Lampsacus, and from there they marched through the Troad to Antandrus and then to Pergamon. There, Xenophon was made aware of a wealthy Persian named Asidates, who lived nearby in a fortified tower that oversaw vast pastures of livestock but that a night attack would enable them to capture him and his family. So one evening, with about 600 men, Xenophon made his way to Asadates' fortified tower. Instead of a direct assault, though, they attempted to tunnel into the tower through the wall. By daybreak, they had created an opening. But it illicitly brought a response, and his army had to fall back. They were showered down by arrows and missiles, and so his men got into a defensive formation with their shields up to protect them, and began to march out of enemy reach. That night, as they made camp, Xenophon received word that Asadates, anticipating that the Greeks would come back with a bigger army, had fled his tower and set up camp at some village south of Parthenion. So he led out his men and surprised him there, capturing his family. 
Afterwards, Xenophon and his army returned to Pergamon, where they were joined by the Spartan general Thibron. Still in the year 399 BC, Xenophon relinquished command of the mercenary army to Thibron, who began to make war on the Persians. This marks the end of the Anabasis, and the story of the Spartan war in Persia will pick back up in the Hellenica when we get there in the narrative. Xenophon's Anabasis is a fascinating tale of swashbuckling adventures, which manages to present an inglorious retreat as a triumph over bumbling Persians. This presentation of the Persians would prove highly influential among later readers, as Xenophon's account of the 10,000s exploits resounded through Greece, to the Romans, and down to modern times. Many thought that their achievement in retreating through the terrain was unparalleled in the annals of war. By the time their trek through the Persian Empire was complete, the 10,000 had seen their numbers dwindle to just under 6,000. Still, this successful march through Persian territory revealed to the Greeks the superiority of their soldiers and the internal weaknesses of Persia. Many Greeks began to believe that it would be possible to invade Persia, subdue it, and take its vast wealth, so that throughout the 4th century BC, many different speakers would come out to urge the Greeks to do exactly this. Most notably, the great Athenian orator and teacher of rhetoric, Isocrates, used the performance of the 10,000 at the Battle of Kunaxa as proof of the weaknesses of the Persian Empire, though this view was more jingoistic than in actuality. Still, what happened after the battle was also taken as proof of Persian weakness. Xenophon stresses the military skill of the mercenaries, as they overcame all obstacles that were in their way. At one point, Isocrates claims that the Greeks' victory at Kunaxa was as easy as if it had been a battle against women. Xenophon himself was aware that their performance could be used to highlight the possibility of an attack on Persia, and some scholars have argued that he wrote the Anabasis to promote a unified Greek expedition against their old enemy. Many of his inserted speeches, including some spoken by Xenophon himself, contain appeals to the Greek spirit and to the memory of earlier Greek victories against Persia. Some scholars surmise that Xenophon's account may have inspired Philip of Macedon to believe that a lean and disciplined Greek army might be relied upon to defeat a Persian army many times its size. And the 2nd century BC historian Polybius claimed that the origin of Alexander's war against Persia lay in the retreat of the 10,000, because it appeared that the Greeks could steamroll through them. In another of his works, the Panagricus, Isocrates argued that it showed what a pushover the Persians would be if the Greeks launched a crusade against them. He referred to these men as, quote, Greeks who were not picked troops, but men who, owing to circumstances, were unable to live in their own countries, end quote. It suited Isocrates to lower their social standing to make their successful escape more striking and the weakness of Persia more blatant. But Isocrates' comments also reflected a growing anxiety about the use of mercenaries in the 4th century BC. First off, the fact that there could be 10,000 Greek hoplites available for such a purpose was a consequence of the Peloponnesian War. It shows us how much that war had helped to uproot people and to impoverish many so that the idea of becoming a mercenary soldier for a Persian prince was attractive enough to take them away from home something that would have been less likely in the prosperous years before the war. But mercenaries became even more important as campaigns became longer, as military skills became more specialized, and the system of bipolar alliances from the Peloponnesian War began to fall apart. 
At the same time, the use of mercenaries was lamented by political thinkers who thought that their growing importance marked a decline from the polis morality, where cities were defended by their own citizens, not by paid troops. Xenophon himself was alive and knew about this hostility, and seemed in his Anabasis to respond to attacks made on the 10,000. He was keen to choose his words carefully, saying that he went to Asia to become Cyrus's friend, not for the sake of cash payments, and that the mercenaries in service were not hard up, but joined because they had heard of Cyrus's magnanimity. Although almost two-thirds of his hoplites came from the relatively poor regions of Arcadia and Achaea in the Peloponnese, these areas had not been hit particularly hard during the war, and there were even many who had served already as mercenaries in Asia Minor beforehand, and we know that mercenaries served in Near Eastern armies as far back as the Archaic period. Many others, like Clearchus, were not able to return home because of domestic issues. Furthermore, those who served as hoplites with Cyrus were at least wealthy enough to supply their own equipment, and many also could afford to bring servants with them to carry it. Plus, the rate of pay was not particularly high by comparison with the known rates of other types of employment, and their troops also had to buy food for themselves and for their servants from local villages or from plunder. So it's likely that it wasn't extreme poverty that compelled so many Greeks to enlist. Maybe it comes down to why a lot of people in modern militaries continue to stay in. Perhaps they just didn't know anything else but war. Crucial to the issue of Xenophon's attitude towards Panhellenism and mercenaries is his presentation of the 10,000 as a polis on the march. He explores how order is created in the army and how that order disintegrates. His analysis of its fragility recalls the concerns of some of his other works. For example, the Hellenica closes with Greece in a worse state of confusion than ever before, and the constitution of the Spartans ends with controversial codas, which trace the decline of once solid social institutions. And it's these disintegrations of the Spartan state, which we shall turn to next. By the end of the 5th century BC, mainland Greece finally enjoyed some semblance of peace but the question and the challenge were whether it could endure. The problems were many, and the political situation was decidedly turbulent. The years between the surrender of Athens and the reestablishment of its democracy had seen an increasingly confident, successful, and independent bloc of power states that had either defied or resisted Spartan ambitions in a strategically crucial region. Thebes, Corinth, Megara, and Argos had demonstrated their intention of not becoming parts of an empire under Spartan domination. Internal allied tensions notwithstanding, a common front was forming against Sparta. Still, the years following the surrender of Athens marked the consolidation of Spartan power, in which they can reasonably be called the hegemon, or leader of Greece. With few exceptions, most of Greece had agreed, not necessarily enthusiastically, either to follow or at least to respect its leadership. Although this period of acknowledged Spartan supremacy proved transient, no single power at this time wished openly to challenge Sparta. Eventually, in the face of Spartan imperial incompetence and myopic policies, many states began to take a more independent position regarding the victors. The fruition of this inclination lay a few years in the future, but for the moment, Sparta stood as the preeminent power in Greece. What they do with that power will be the topic of the next episode. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 111, the Spartan Hegemony.